previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. To me, I think as, as great as a shooter as Steph Curry is, I hate his shot selection. But the guy, he drills more shots than he misses, but his shot selection to me is awful. Set your coordinates and lock in your location because it's time for the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the meeting place to talk sports, pop culture, and everything in between. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome back to the Sports Refuge Podcast. I'm Earl Holland. Last week, I interviewed Linwood Outlaw, a co-contributor to the Sports Refuge, about the NBA and, in general, how he became a fan of the Philadelphia 76ers while living in Baltimore, Maryland. This week, in part two of our two-show interview, we'll discuss how Outlaw became a fan of pro wrestling, comparing it to the other forms of entertainment, and what it's like attending WrestleMania not only once, but multiple times. We'll discuss how he became a football fan, and what it was like living in Baltimore after the Colts left in 1984, and before the 1995 announcement of the arrival of the Ravens. We'll also discuss his career in journalism, as well as talk about other forms of entertainment. Right now, here's part two of my interview with Linwood Outlaw. If you caught our previous episode, I've been talking to Linwood Outlaw, a good friend of mine from the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. We went to school together such a long time ago. It's crazy to think that it's almost been a good 20 years since we went to school together. What does it say about to you about time flying? It's just hard to fathom that in a couple of years, it'll be 20 years since we first started going to school together. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Those four years in Eastern Shore went by incredibly fast. High school didn't go by as fast as the time Eastern Shore did. But those were good years. I learned a lot about myself, a lot about the world there. You know, like my mom always says, um, I was like, damn, time's just flying by. She was like, you don't know how fast time by until you wonder where it went then. But yeah, I mean, days go by a lot quicker. Experiences happen a lot quicker and then they go by a lot quicker. I mean, it's just crazy how time works once you get to this point. Now I have you know, gray hair everywhere now. It's just, you know, it's just crazy how it goes, but you know, you know, I just roll with the punches, man. In terms of how time works and how it moves, man, it is what it is. You know, just trying to be the best person I can be, make the most of my opportunities while I can, and just enjoy life all together. I think sometimes people are in a place where they freak out about getting older and time moving fast and things like that. But you know, for me, I'm just rolling with it, man. But it, it is incredible how fast those years go by. How it seemed like it just happened, and it was just so long ago. What led to your decision to go to the University of Maryland Eastern Shore? Was an HBCU in your plans of going to college? Um, I mean, on some level. Now, like, I wasn't, you know, you know, going to an HBCU per se. The reason why I chose it was it was far enough away from home where you, you feel like you're actually going away to school, but it was close enough for me to get back. That was the biggest thing for me. Also, for me, I pretty much had made it on my mind going to be like Eastern Shore, Bowie, or Frostburg. I got into all of those schools. I think that Frostburg, I would have had to wait a semester. I forget what the issue was, um, but I would have had to wait a semester to start. Like I knew, I met a couple of people at Eastern Shore who had to wait until like the spring semester where they could um, start Eastern Shore. I can't recall why I couldn't start there. Really, I would have had to do some orientation program as Eastern Shore. I didn't have to do it, so it was just an easy decision for me to pick Eastern Shore. I like the location. I did for all schools, and I like Eastern Shore's atmosphere better. And this is before they had even the new. Um, the student service center up and running, but it was fine. I'm usually um, a shy, quiet type person anyway, so I like, you know, atmosphere is really somewhat quiet and stuff. It just felt like a good fit for me. Now, you had a career in journalism. I'd say a fairly lengthy career in journalism. What led you down that path to writing and inevitably journalism? I've always liked writing, and writing has always been my passion. Like, I knew from the time I was in middle school, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to do something right better than something like that. That's just 
what my passion is. That's what I like to do. I like to tell stories, you know. I like to um, do anything related to those skill sets. I feel like I'm happy in a role doing that. Like I've had proofreading jobs. I've had, you know, some jobs where you write stories and things like that. But I mean, that's always been my passion early on. I've always known that. And through that, I just wanted to figure out which direction I wanted to go once I got to Eastern Shore. And I went a couple of directions. I've been in PR, I've been in newspapers. I interned at a TV station, right? But I just feel like in that realm, whatever it is I'm doing, I'm happy doing that. Sometimes, you know, what your passion is, it just is what it is. Whether that's playing sports or you're an accountant or whatever, you know, if you feel it inside of you, that's what you should be doing. That's what you're supposed to be. That's what you're supposed to pursue. And, you know, I've always known from the time I knew, like, I think a lot of times, you know, kids, when they go to college, I have friends at Eastern Shore that didn't know what they wanted to do after two years there. I knew what my major was going to be long before I even considered going to Eastern Shore and stuck with it all the way through. I'll admit, when I did a various number of things growing up, I wrote in newspaper in middle school. I did radio, like I did a week-long radio camp. I did like some intern stuff as a high schooler doing radio and things like that. I wasn't really sure initially which route I wanted to go. I know it wanted to be something creative, whether it was going to be writing or behind the camera or in front of the camera or behind the mic and it was something just trying to figure out which of those fields and it felt like in a day where you couldn't really do everything but now flash forward 20 25 years later you're able to do a variety of different facets because the technology's allowed it and the different routes of creating content has allowed it radio was a first love and then i decided well i do want to get into tv but i i never really fully put that effort into getting to what i was worried that you know in television such a superficial business you have to look a certain way and that was the biggest thing yeah, like that was some of the things for me too. I never really was interested in radio, so I knew I didn't want to do that. There was a time where I did want to be on TV. I think everybody wants to be on TV in front of a camera at some point in their life, right? Doing something like that. But I don't know, for whatever reason, I never really felt comfortable in the anchor's chair or anything like that. But one of the things I did consider doing was being a producer because during my internship at ABC2, the summer before my final year at Eastern Shore, I actually got a chance to like write scripts for newscasts or the anchors to read. And I liked that. I felt proud about doing that stuff. And they actually read the stuff that I wrote. So I actually considered doing that for a little bit. But somewhere along the way, I became, you know, more interested in doing like newspaper type print. You know, I like that style of writing too. You know, it's not as, as glamorous or it doesn't pay as well as the TV industry. But I think that that style, the newspaper style of writing, you know, having more room and, and having a better ability to tell stories and investigate things or report on things, research things, those things appeal to me. Whereas on TV, everything, you got to fit everything into a five minute package and stuff like that. So I've always knew that the radio wasn't the option for me. I knew a couple of people there who like radio really want to get into that. And that's good. You know, there are a lot of people who have great radio personalities. I thought you had a great radio personality and, and could fit in that field. But that's just not something I was interested in doing. I always knew that was probably going to be something along the lines of like writing for web or writing for newspapers. I know you talked about the news writing at, at Channel 2. It's funny. When I interned at Channel 4 for George Michael, we did a lot of the stuff that production assistants would do. We charted games. We would go out, maybe get an interview. Actually, I think that was like one of my first interviews was I interviewed Stacey Dales and Elena Beard after a Mystics game that they played at Comic mm-hmm. Park. And that was very exciting. And then I was lucky enough. I actually went to an Allen Iverson celebrity softball game they had in Bowie in 2004. And meeting him, Richard Hamilton, LeBron, Tim Thomas, things like that. That was such an experience. And I felt like, okay, I'm really doing a lot of interviewing. And I feel like the interviewing thing was something that the more you do over time, 
the better you get with it. And that's something that maybe I felt like I could have grown into, but I was always worried about you have to look a certain way yeah. on TV. And, and I didn't feel like I fit in that. And maybe I could have, but I, it was one of those things where I felt like, am I maybe put a little more effort and maybe took that shot and seen what I needed to do? Maybe it would have been something a little different. But, you know, sometimes things in life happen and you just have to go that route. Yeah, the print journalism thing was something I didn't expect to do for a while. I was thinking, yeah, it'd be nice maybe I'll parlay it to maybe doing something at one of the TV stations after that. And then I just got entrenched in it. But the biggest thing was once I got out of the creative aspect, it was out of my hands. It just didn't feel the same anymore. Being a copy editor, I didn't feel like I was a journalist anymore. Yeah, it's just hard to really say. Like, I think there you meet some people who, you know, they're just reporters like that's their passion like being a reporter is their livelihood is what they do they really see it and those are the best ones who usually turn out the best work right best way i can describe myself is that like i love to write and edit you know if i'm in a position where i can tell stories which is what i like to do good stories i want to do that but i'm also happy in other writing positions like my current position now is a web content writer i get a chance to do a little bit of everything write blogs write news releases doing patient centered stories stuff like that like anything in that role i'm good with i'm also trying to get everything cleared so i can do more articles for your blog and platform so that's what i like to do i like it all different kinds of phases that's what my passion is in any role almost really as far as writing and editing that's what i love to do and i always tell you know younger people who i meet like you know that's what you have to do you just got to believe in what you want to do put all of your focus and heart into doing that always follow your passion don't do what other folks think you should do like i think there were people that tried to talk me out of doing this because it doesn't pay well and stuff like that and i'm like i get it but i think you just have to follow what your true passion is because that's ultimately what's going to lead you to success yeah it may not lead you to as many dollars as the next person but i mean some people are just natural born business people right so i mean i'm not a natural born business person like i mean i wish i was like i mean it'd be great to be business savvy but i feel like business people are always like important folk they're always out and about they're always making big time investments they look like they have like a, a, a great lifestyle but that has to be in you that has to be in you to be a, a businessman a businesswoman and you know, to have those kinds of smarts and, and knowledge and to be talented in that way you know i think that sometimes you just got to recognize your path and follow it you know that best advice i try to give kids that ever you know want my advice about anything that's the best advice i try to give them you have to follow that passion and be who you are and be the best person that you can be and i feel like you know writing and editing i've had a lot of roles in that way over the last couple of years but I've, for the most part i've been happy in those roles because it's something that i like to do now we're recording this maybe about a month removed from the incident at the capitol gazette and mm -hmm. the day i heard that and i knew people who when i worked at the daily times who worked at the Capitol Gazette and it's just sort of hit you because as a reporter and having that experience as a reporter rarely do you think that something like that would occur it may be something you think you'd see in the movies or on television but for something like that to really occur it, it makes you sort of take stock in your mind what was your reaction to it when you heard that and sort of related what do you think are some of the actual rigors of being a reporter the wear and tear the things that sort of can grind on you over time as far as the tragedy goes i mean i was just terrified and just deeply saddened i was actually running into our break slash conference room at my job and I was running into I think I don't know 
speak with a coworker about a project we're working on, and they were watching on TV. Our TV is rarely on, but whenever it is on, I usually know something's up somewhere. So and I looked on there and I saw what was happening. I didn't realize how many people had been hurt or killed or anything like that at that point because the details were still, you know, they were still coming in at that point. But I knew something bad had happened, and I was just incredibly saddened by it, man. It was just an unfortunate situation. It was terrible watching it. I feel terrible now for those reporters uh, colleagues and their families because that's not something that anybody should have to go through or deal with and it was just incredibly sad man but the sad thing is is that the tragedy like that can happen at any time anywhere I've read a lot of the stories about how the reporters almost were hurt and, and, and killed in a lot of duty and sense, which is true. But the sad part about it also is that random shootings can occur anywhere, man. Schools, movie theaters, anywhere, you name it, it can happen. And that's the most terrifying part about today's world. And it's unsettling watching that. And it's unsettling to see so many people hurt and murdered by someone with no justifiable agenda in any situation like that. But people who are doing their job, doing good jobs, I mean, I've read all the personal stories about the folks who were killed and hurt. And, you know, they seem like they were great at what they do. You know, and they seem like they loved what they did. You know, to just see what happened to them, it was just sad. And my heart still goes out to everybody that was affected by that because it was awful. It was awful watching that. And when I saw it for the rest of the day, I just wanted to go home. I was like, man, I'm just not even moved to work because I hate when things like that happen. I hate when all this unnecessary violence and things happen. And it's so puzzling, like, as to why these things have to happen. But, you know, it definitely hit the field of journalism hard. But the great thing is that they still put out a paper the next day. And that was just tremendous. It just made me proud to be affiliated with that kind of industry or to have been affiliated with, with newspaper writing and stuff like that. You know, it just spoke to great resolve. I respect great resolve. And, you know, to continue to press forward. I mean, that's what the business is all about. You know, and I think that in order to be a journalist, you have to be tough minded. You have to be thick skinned. I mean, because most of the time you're going to feel like folks are going to think that you're trying to pester them. And all you're really trying to do is your job. Like, for instance, in this role that I do, you know, a lot of the things I try to write or like related to medical topics, almost like health right in a sense. Like some of the articles I've written were picked up by like affiliates of the U.S. News and World Report and stuff like that. So, I mean, I put a lot of care into trying to figure out what to write about, which is a challenge, especially in the health side of the field, trying to keep up with trends, trying to figure out, you know, what would be interesting for folks to read and how to best market the healthcare organization I work for, the physicians who work there, the services that we provide. All of that goes into what I try to write. And some of it is just like, you know, tracing down the experts, find out who to talk to who to get good information from and you know i thought that stuff was going to be easier <laughs> being like almost like working from within that organization but it's just as tough because you still have to track folks down you still got to get answers to your questions you still got to set up interview times you got to pester people you know you have to be really tough-minded and determined to do your job and to do it the right way you have to be passionate about doing because a lot of the intangibles that come with that folks being rude to be kind to writers just hanging on for a call back or to get some information i mean like you have to really be strong-willed and tough-minded and determined to do this job. And I mean, if you're doing something like as far as like crime reporting or whatever, I mean, people are going to perceive what you write different. But your goal is always to be as fair as you possibly can, which I feel journalists are for the most part. It's a hard job, man. One of the toughest things I had to do um, in my career was speak to the family of a four-year-old boy who had drowned in a dam when I worked in Northern Virginia. I believe it was in Front Royal, Virginia at the time, right? You know, speaking to folks right there on the scene, while they're still getting information, while they're still holding out hope that the kid can be found or that his body can be found, you know, and those things are 
hard to approach, man. You got to deal with wild emotions at that time. And you understand how they feel in that moment. But the thing is that this is your job. You know what I mean? It's your job to, to get that information. I think you have to do it in the most respectful way, but it's difficult nonetheless to do without question. So it poses a lot of unique challenges to feel. And it still does to this day. One of the reasons why I kind of transitioned away from newspapers was because at the time the, the business was going through a lot of layoffs and cuts and all these other things. And I just didn't really know what direction things were moving in the business. So I was looking for more like stability and stuff like that. So I'm not sure where things stand. I still read about cuts. I even still read about cuts now at big TV stations like television networks like ESPN. So it can be a tough business, man. It can be tough to make a living within that industry. And it could be a lot of moving around. It could be a lot of having to adjust to a lot of different companies and, and stuff like that. I mean, you just, just roll the flow that your career is going. But, you know, if you're truly passionate about writing and you truly love what you do, you know, it's a rewarding field. You were talking about the uh, four-year-old drowning. I feel like if you started out as a reporter in any aspect, sometimes before you can get to that beat you want to cover, you're going to cover the general stuff. I've covered a story, I think it was about a 13 or 14-year-old who drowned in the Wicomico River in Salisbury, Maryland. We're seeing people go in the water, grab the kid, and, you know, you still have their parents there. The mom was there, ended up talking to the mom the next day after everything had occurred. And, yeah, when you see the ambulances pull them out of the water, it really hits you, the realness of it. I mean, yeah. I've covered trials where you hear victim impact statements about it was a man who killed his girlfriend, shot her with a shotgun. And you don't expect all the emotion that comes through the victim impact statements through the testimony and things like that it sort of has this effect on you you know i always prefer writing sports over writing with other stuff it's not that i couldn't handle those things you know you will have covered a council meeting maybe a court case maybe a breaking news involving a murder or something like that and sometimes that can put a wear on you and sometimes you rather maybe do something a little more featurey or business stuff or sports and i i feel like it's not a case of someone not being a tough enough to do that. It's maybe you wanted to be a little lighter. And I've always mentioned as well, yeah, filling out FOIAs may be great, but sometimes I feel like covering a sporting event, it's everything is out there. There's nothing hiding. There's no sort of no comments here. Whatever you saw out on the field or the court or the ice, it happened. They're not disputing that. And, you know, whether how people react to it and what happens after that, maybe you'll get those types of things, but... I feel like sometimes, unless you're, you know, you go into investigative sports journalism where you're unlocking stuff like the Penn State things, and even then there's still a twist of news there. It's something that you may have to occasionally do, but I feel like sometimes sports can be a bit of an escape from the hard news. Yeah, I mean, sports, you know, I've always been more like a like, general news writer or something of that sort, but I'm trying to get more into sports. Like, I've done sports-related articles, and I'm trying to improve in that way. I'm hoping to do that, like, on your platform. I always enjoy sports writing, man. Like, I mean, they tell so many great stories, and I respect how, you know, people who report on sports, whether it's the local sports, whether it's, you know, professional sports, how they're able to tell these stories, because there's so many great stories to be told in that way. And you're right, you know what I mean? But, and the beautiful thing about it is, is that you get to capture the moment that happen in sports and you get to write the stories in a way that captures like you're trying to write it for a person as if you want to make the person feel like that they were at the game themselves you know you want them to feel what happens and what transpires during the game and at pivotal moments and it's, it's, a, it's a great talent to be able to do that and I've always admired that about sports Growing up in Baltimore you were alive around the time the Colts left Baltimore what was it like in a post-Colts Baltimore with there being no football what was that experience like growing up what did you do following teams during that time before the news broke in 1995? 
before the Ravens were established, I mean, football was non-existent to me. I didn't care about football on any level. I didn't care about it. I didn't care about football at all. Like people always ask me, well, you know, before the Ravens came along, who was your team? I said, man, I didn't watch football. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't watch football at all. I said I was mostly an NBA fan, but I didn't even watch the NBA consistently. I was a bigger wrestling fan more than anything else when I was a kid coming up. More than anything else, I was all in the WWF, WCW, all of that. Like, I mean, that was it for me as a kid. Like, I, if it wasn't wrestling or NBA... I mean, I didn't really watch it in terms of like sports or sports entertainment. And, you know, so I can just speak from my perspective. Football was non-existent for me. All right. Like the only time I really cared about football was when it was Super Bowl time. And I was more so infatuated with the parties and the food and the spread than the actual game because I wasn't emotionally attached to any team, any result, you know? So that's what it was like for me coming up. There was, I guess, like a lot of people, like I read all the time that people here were like Steelers fans because, you know, they didn't want to root for the Colts or anything. And I guess, I don't know. I mean, you know, I guess people in this area also were Redskins fans. Like I had a bag when I was in elementary school, but you know, my parents picked that stuff out. I wasn't a Redskins fan. I mean, football just didn't matter to me. And then when I finally learned that a team was actually coming here, that was exciting. Like it was exciting. Like I was just getting to the age where I was starting to get more into professional sports. And it was just like, wow, like well, we have an NFL team. Like, and then you start thinking about possibilities like Super Bowls. It's like, well, we probably won't win Super Bowl until I'm like 30 or something like that. But we're going to finally have a team here. And then lo and behold, it only took us, what, like five years to win a Super Bowl. And, you know, it was just an excitement, man. It was for me, it was just exciting. It took a time for things to really catch on. Like it took a time for things like Purple Friday and, you know, the Red Ravens walk and everything downtown for the town to really be taken over by the Ravens. Took a time for that stuff to manifest because when the team first came, it was still all new. You know, and I guess maybe you still had some loyal Colts fans and you still have people who like the Steelers. Like, there's still people walking around town now that are Steelers fans. I don't get it, but hey, man, it's just how it is. And but I know for me, like, I was excited when the team moved here because then that's when I started to make a connection with the NFL and it, it's something that actually mattered to me. Like, it meant nothing to me to watch Green Bay and the Patriots. And, and the Denver Broncos in the Super Bowl, like during those years before the Ravens came to town and the aftermath of the Colts exit in the middle of the night. You know what I mean? To me, it was just like something that happened on Super Bowl. It was like a holiday. It was like Christmas. You came in, you go to a party, you eat, you have fun, you see people rooting and cheering in front of a TV screen, but I didn't care anybody think about that stuff. But when the Ravens came, that's when I really started to develop, you know, a connection with the NFL from a fan standpoint. I started, I guess, sort of watching the Redskins in 1994, but in that time, living in Salisbury, where we'd get the Washington, D.C. and the Baltimore stations. When I heard there was a football team coming to Baltimore, the Stallions, the CFL team, I would watch Channel 2 every Saturday night, like mm -hmm. 7, 7.30, and watch the Stallions play those years. And them being one of the most dominant American teams in the CFL, they were making the Grey Cup twice. It was an interesting experience watching those games. I mean, a lot of those guys on those teams, a few of them went to the NFL. Of course, O.J. Brigance. Yep. Yeah, he was a linebacker on the team there. I remember their quarterback was Tracy Ham. There were so many different guys. I can't pull them off the top of my head. I remember I'd watch them play like the BC Lions, and I think that's where Doug Flutie played yeah, when he was in the CFL. But, yeah, it was just crazy watching the game, you know, the three downs, 12 guys on the field, the 55-yard line, and things like that. It was an interesting experience. And all of a sudden, then you hear that the Browns are moving to Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And... It was excitement there, but I felt like 
a team like the Stallions sort of got no love, even though they were there. And they would sell out. And it was a football town. But I feel like they didn't get the love. They were sort of the, I wouldn't even say the rebound girlfriend. They were like the girl that was there and like, oh, something better comes along. See ya. Sort of (laughs) like that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I didn't follow the Stallions. I didn't. But, you know, looking back and reading about their accomplishments, like a co-worker gave me one of the best, like, gifts I ever received. It was a book about the history of football in Baltimore. I mean, it was great. It had great pictures, great stories. Articles were in about things like about the Colts move, about the Ravens Super Bowl triumphs. It was just great. And just reading about what the Stallions accomplished, it was like, damn, this was a good team. Like, I wish I cared enough to have followed it and appreciated what they were doing back then. But I just wasn't in that mindset because, to me, there was no reason to have that connection. I had no reason to be invested. I wasn't even invested in the Redskins' success. I didn't care. But, you know, the Ravens came at a time for me, just the right time. I was about 12 years old when I really started becoming a serious professional sports fan. Because, really, I think that that's when you really start to realize what's going on. And I'm not saying everybody does, but for me, that's where I was. Before then, it was just pro wrestling all day for me. Then um, it got to a point where I started pay close attention to the NBA. I started to pay close attention to the NFL and then like right on cue with that, Baltimore gets a team, man. I was excited all hell that they came there and I was pumped, man, just to have an NFL team to cheer for and root for and just been on like that ever since. But the other teams that have been there, like I tried to now, like, you know, they have the brigade right now. I went to, you know, one of their games on their first season here. And I probably would have done the same if I was in the football. We had a team back then with the Stallions. Or I at least would have begged my dad to take me. You know what I mean? But, you know, yeah, I just know that for me, before the Ravens were here, I mean, it was just like I had no reason to even care about football. And I see you on Facebook and on Twitter talking a lot about the Orioles. When did your following with the Orioles, when did that start to increase? As far back as I can remember now, I've always been an O's fan, like ever since I was a young kid, you know, like it's always been a lot to cheer for the home team. And to me, in my mind, the Orioles were the only thing in town in terms of sports. That was the only game in town. And that's all you ever saw around town was Orioles stuff. And you know what I mean? Or you just hear about Cal Ripken and this great streak that he was amassing. And, you know, I loved him. I've always loved the Orioles. Cal Ripken was like a hero to me growing up as a kid. And it's like... Even my grandmother was like, yeah, you go to school. I want you to be like Cal Ripken. So I want to be like Cal Ripken. I want to go to school every day, stuff like that. You know what I mean? You know, not that, that my dad wasn't setting a great example for me. He was, but I'm just saying, like, I also looked at Cal as, like, you know, something like a hero, too. And, you know, it's hard to explain. It's just like it's almost felt like I was just born an O's fan. I can't really describe it. You know, the thing about my teams is that they all won championships the year I was born. Haven't won it since I've been here. I almost feel like that's my fault in some sense. Like the O's, if I'm not mistaken, they last won a World Series in 1983, and the Sixers won a championship. Fo fo fo. You remember that in in June '83. So those are the connections I have to those teams. Just to you know throw that out there. And you know that's just how it's been, man. I mean, like that to me for the longest time, they were always the only game in town. That's the only team from a sports standpoint that I could get behind. I used to go to O's games. My dad taking me to old games all the time as a child. We always went to those games, even when they had the good years, like what the mid '90s. We went to games during that year. Like that was just a thing. That was just a part of my childhood, man. Just attending those games and and cheering for those teams. It was just always great experiences going to the ballpark. And it's funny you were talking about the Sixers winning '83. That's the same thing for me. The last time, well, I can't say that the Redskins did win in '91, but I wasn't focused on that, paying attention to it. Like I said, that year, Orioles mm-hmm. won in '83, Redskins won in '83. You say the Sixers won in '83. All those mm-hmm. years intertwined. I mean, other than that, the Baltimore, Washington area saved for the Capitals. You know, it was very lean times. 
in between. And that brings me to another subject. It feels like for years they've been trying to group Baltimore and Washington together as a market. And the two cities can't be further different from each other. Your thoughts on them trying to group those two together? And then really, what do you feel like the differences between those two cities are? You know what? It's funny because... <laughs> I didn't realize like how different those places were until I got to Eastern Shore. Like, and I met people from DC, and you know, it just seemed like when you interact with folks from DC, like the PG area and stuff like that, first time, it's like you really realize like how different they perceive people from Baltimore to be, how they different they perceive the area to be from DC. Now, obviously, DC is the nation's capital, you know, and I mean, yeah, I guess they are different, but I never thought that they were as drastically different as it became clear to me that they were. But, you know, it's all good and fun. I met a lot of friends in the D.C. area, a lot of cool people in D.C. area. It's a place I like to hang out in when I can. You know, from a sports standpoint, I like the fun rivalry aspect of it. I was like, oh, so they got the Nationals now. Nationals are doing way better than we are, I guess, kind of deal. Okay. I love the Redskins, Ravens rivalry. I like that Beltway theme, man. Like, I always hope there's a time when we can play the Redskins in the Super Bowl. I'd love it. Oh, man, I love it. I talk trash to Redskins fans all week. (laughs) <laughs> well, the two weeks leading up to the game, if that happened, I would love it, man. I'm telling you, yeah, I'd be cutting the fool on social media and everything. But I like the aspect of it, you know what I mean? I think that is fun. I think that it can be fun. I just want my teams to get better so that we can have our share in that fun and, you know, and experience that. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. I just think that D.C. is just a big market in and of itself, you know, and Baltimore, I think, is a big enough market. But I don't think it's ever going to be, you know, as big as D.C. or anything like that. You know, whatever. But yeah, I think it can be a fun sports rivalry between the cities for sure. I think it could be. I think there's a lot of potential for that. And it's funny, living on the Eastern Shore, I was able to experience people from Baltimore and from Washington. And like you said, the perception of what they thought could have been way different than what it actually was. And Growing up down on the Eastern Shore, it's a rural area. And, you know, you get the comments that, hey, you guys talk really country. And then you feel like somebody yeah. from a region a little further up north talks more country than you do. And that was yeah. the biggest thing. And for years, and I'll admit it, I have a voice where, and I don't hear it that often, that it doesn't match what you would expect. And I, I'm fine with that. Right. I've had people thought I was actually from, you know, across the bridge. And with the mm-hmm. school, but I was like, now nah, I'm from the Eastern Shore. I'm, I'm from Salisbury, old Smallsbury, as everybody was calling yeah. But it, it's very interesting. Like I said, meshing with all the people from different regions. Like I said, at UMES, we went people from Baltimore, from Washington, from New Jersey, from New York. You may get the occasional person from maybe from Atlanta or mm-hmm. things like that. And I feel yeah. like... That was cool. You got to interact with a lot of people and you learn a lot of things. You know, you build a lot of friendships and that's the coolest thing about it. Going back to the sports side, I am so intertwined that, like I said, my baseball team is Baltimore. My football, basketball, and occasional hockey teams are all Washington. So it's sort of one of those things where it's on one side, yeah, Redskins-Ravens game, I'm cheering for the Redskins. Orioles-Nationals, I'm cheering for the Orioles. And I'll go to a Redskins game and yell, oh, during an anthem, which they're sort of trying to push that out because, oh, that's a Baltimore thing. But I'll do that all the time. As soon as if I'm at FedEx Field and they get to that last line of the Star Spangled Banner, I'm yelling, oh, at the top of my lungs. And yeah. that's something that won't change. Yeah, you know, I save, like I said, Sixers, the only out-of-state team that I support. Like I said, I'm home team, true and, and blue. Ravens, Orioles all day. You know what I mean? That's my squads. And I love having those home team groups. I take pride in being fans for those teams. You know, even now the Orioles, I mean, they're a complete mess. But, I mean, it's just the way that it is, like being a loyal team. I think somebody asked if, like, Baltimore was ever get a basketball team that I get behind that. No. 
I'm always going to be a Sixers fan. But yeah, I mean, Ravens and Orioles, I'm huge fans of those teams. And I do like the act of a potential beltway rivalry with those teams. I would love it. You know, I just want us to get the better end of those rivalries. I think that it could be fun, you know. It could be. Now, you mentioned growing up, one of the biggest things you watched was wrestling. How mm-hmm. did you get into watching wrestling, and how do you sort of deal with people telling you that? I mean, like, you don't already know that it's predetermined <laughs> yeah. and choreographed. It's hilarious, man. I mean, I can start with how I got into it. It was around 93. I was over in front of my oh, my best friend, Chaz, growing up. And we were watching, I want to say it was WWF Superstars. And back then, they did the recap. I'll never forget, that was the episode they did the recap I don't know if you recall, it was when um, when Crush had returned and he had put this all-out assault on the Macho Man Randy Savage when he came back. I was like so caught up in that. Like I couldn't believe all that stuff was happening because it, it looked real, it felt real, and it was just like, wow, like, man, that's some crazy stuff that happened. I was just hooked on it ever since. I was like, cause I had never watched wrestling before then. I mean, this was like early 93, I think, or around mid-93 or something like that. And then come to find out, you know, he was like, yeah, man, it's like uh, my friend Chaz introduced me to the whole world of professional wrestling. He had the action figures. He had a couple of tapes from, I think, WrestleMania Five. I think that was the vintage tape that he had. So we watched that. And then from there on, man, I just started watching wrestling every week. I started watching um, Superstars, all of that stuff. Uh, at the time, Blockbuster was the big thing. So when I um, saw they had like a, a sports and recreation place, I went over there. They had all all of these videos from WWF's past, like from late 80s, early 80s and 90s. My dad would take me to Blockbuster like every weekend, every Friday. And every Friday I'm renting a new video that I never seen. And then that's just how I just, you know, just watched whether it was like a WWF world tour. The stuff that you can find on WWE Network, which I am a subscriber of. Cyber Series, Royal Rumbles. I remember one video that was difficult to find. It was always never there for some reason was SummerSlam 93. I don't know why that was the case, but I guess I was that was a new show around the time that I was just getting into wrestling. And, you know, I just caught up on it from there. That's how I just caught up on what was, you know, the whole business of WWF and all that stuff. Then I got into watching WCW and it just took on from there. I got started back in my parents for the video games. It was just fun, man. It was just fun to get behind. Today, obviously, like the business, it's not the same, but nothing ever stays the same. You know what I mean? Like the NBA hasn't stayed the same. I think the NBA was probably a better product years ago. It's less imaginative now, you know, I think for whatever reason, but the actual wrestling that takes place in the ring is way better than I've ever seen it. Like these matches are just unbelievable. They're doing stuff that I'm never knew wrestlers could do. So it's wild. You know, I feel like storylines can be stronger. They can be a bit more creative. The writing can be more consistent. What's actually going on in the ring is just amazing because these wrestlers today are just phenomenal athletes and they really know how to put on a good show. So, yeah, man, I think that people, it's just so silly, this whole thing, like, oh, it's fake. Like, they're making some big revelation to you for the first time. It's like every time somebody finds out that you watch professional wrestling, it's almost like they're trying to break into a kid that Santa Claus doesn't exist. Like, that's the approach that they take. Like, I'm somewhere, like, I've believed all my life that professional wrestling was as real as what you see on the UFC. It was as real as any confrontation. And, like, they're making this heartbreaking revelation to me, and they, like, expect me to, like, melt down when they make that revelation. Like, no, it's fake. Are you kidding? It's called sports entertainment for a reason, you know? And I think that people missed that. There was a point in time, don't get me wrong, where I believe that Vince McMahon and a lot of other promoters wanted to sell the illusion that what you were watching was real. Yes, I do believe that there was a time where they wanted to do that. 
That time has long since passed. Vince has done, in my opinion, the right thing and has promoted sports entertainment more than this is reality kind of deal. And I think that it insults fans less. It has insulted fans less, and it also allows them to do more creative things. But when it comes to wrestling, man, I mean, they're just as good as anybody else in the entertainment business. Like, I can go watch a wrestling show all day, but I won't criticize anybody for going to go watch Star Wars. And ones to go, you know, watch a cartoon or a TV show or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, listen, what are we really talking about here? All entertainment is rooted in fiction. You know, if you can watch a TV series, why can't I choose to watch wrestling as a sports entertainment brand? So that's how I look at it. But, you know, I think that wrestlers do deserve some respect because they're athletes, because they do athletic performances. And I think that, you know, I hear some people say like, oh, the mat is as soft as the mattress. Yeah, try getting body slammed on that mat and tell me if that's like the mattress you go home and lay on every night. Or listen to Taz's podcast um, a couple weeks ago. I never really listened to it, but for every reason I was listening, I stumbled upon it on YouTube, listened to it for a little bit. And he kind of mentioned how, how difficult it is just to lift up the steel stairs that the wrestlers have to lift up, primarily because they have to be stable and sturdy for people to walk on, especially like 500 pounders and things like that, like with big shows walking up the stairs to get into the ring. And I never even thought about that aspect of it. Yeah, man, I just think that it's just funny, like when people who aren't invested in wrestling, who don't watch it, I don't knock them at all. I mean, to each his own. Like, I'm not all into hockey, but there's some people who are crazy about hockey, right? And, you know, that's what it is. But yeah, it's like every time I, you know, someone finds that out, it's like, uh, bro, that's, you know, that's not real, right? You know, it's just like, no. It's like, man, they don't get the aspect of sports entertainment. It is entertainment. And it's, and honestly, I'm going to be completely real with you because I'm actually, you know, like I saw that would writing this up in a piece about what it's like to be at WrestleMania. Like, I think that one of my goals is always like to go to a Super Bowl, but I don't think that I would have as much fun at Super Bowl as I do at a WrestleMania. You know what I mean? Like, it's just fun being in those environments. It really is. And it's like you just get swept up in it, man. These crowds nowadays are crazy. But they're so crazy and so wrapped up in having a good time. That's what I admire about professional wrestling fans. You know what I mean? Like, they really enjoy what they see. And that's, you know, when you're able to do that as an entertainment uh, organization or a company or whatever, that's what you shoot for. And I think that Vince McMahon has done that better than anybody in recent years, over the years, I should say. And, you know, it's fun. It's just fun to be a part of that from a fan standpoint. Going back to what you're saying, when people say, you know, it's fake, right? I always use this joke because it's always true. And I said, you know, I never knew that. But I didn't know that Die Hard was based off a true story either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. People are weird like that. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like they don't get it. Like, it's nothing for them to go dress up and watch Black Panther. You know what I mean? Dress up like their favorite superhero and go see that. And I love Black Panther. I'm just saying, like, you know, you should see the outfits that people wore, like, that opening night to go see that movie. And probably that week and that month, I'm like, look, is it Halloween? What's going on, man? Like, I mean, like, honestly. But then they'll try to basically educate me on what's real and what's not real about professional wrestling. So, I mean, like, that's really what it is. It's like, no, I understand what I'm watching, but I choose to watch it. I'm entertained by it. I do have respect for the performers on television, also from an acting standpoint, but also from an athletic standpoint, because they deserve that kind of respect. And the funny thing is, a person who's a fan of a Disney movie telling you what you're watching isn't real is really the funniest thing about it. And it goes back to a a quote that Jeff Jarrett, of all people, said that with wrestling, watching it, Mm -hmm. it's basically to a fan... 
there's no way you can disprove it. And to a non-fan, there's no way you can prove it to them. Yeah, I mean, listen, the bottom line is that I think that the storylines itself are scripted, right? The outcomes are scripted. And I think that any fan who watches the business for as long as they've watched it have a good impression of how it works. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, results are geared towards fan reaction and how over a wrestler can get that sort of stuff. But when it's done right, wrestling can be very, very entertaining. And it's, it's a good time. It really is. Like, trust me, I wouldn't attend wrestling shows if they weren't a good time. I wouldn't watch them if I didn't think it was worth watching from an entertainment standpoint. But no, I don't go in thinking like, oh, yeah, this is all serious business. This is this this is that livelihoods, championships, all that stuff. But I think that WWE has a unique way of telling stories when they're invested in telling really good stories. I've seen really entertaining storylines over the years, some that felt real, some that that spoke to situations that you may have been dealing with in your personal life, you know. But from, you know, Jeff Jarrett's point, I mean, look, I mean, there's no you have to hit that canvas. You know, you, you may have to take bumps through a table. And I mean, there's no soft or easy way to do that stuff. I mean, don't tell me that Shane McMahon doesn't risk a lot of stuff falling from the top of a Hell in a Cell cage through an announcer's table. Him, not a stuntman, him. And someone who doesn't have to do that, okay? But yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's a business where they have athletic ability that should be respected. And I think they should also be respected as performers because, I mean, you know, the respect that, that actors get, that well, certain actors get, I feel like wrestlers should get as well. What was your first live wrestling event that you attended? I think it was a, a WWE house show around 1994. That was my first event. It was a house show. And man, I thought that was like the greatest thing. I, to me, at, at that time, it was like being at WrestleMania. To actually be there for the first time live, I think that uh, Jarrett was on that card, Yokozuna, Tatanka, a lot of those guys. Uh, Brett, the Hitman Hart, Bob Holly, guys like that. Like, I recall them being on the card. I think one, two, three kid may have been on that show. Just some of those uh, WWE stars from back then. It was a fun experience, man. It was my first time being at a live WWE show. And I was like, wow. It's obviously a little different from the presentation on TV. You don't see, you know, the, the Raw setup and all the WWE superstars set up. Because at the time, house shows were just that. You just set up the ring. Um, they had a walkway. But nothing like, you know, I think from what I can tell, house shows are dramatically improved and you still feel some of that you know that electricity you might see on a regular tv show that you do at a house show but um that was a great experience for me man i just had a ball there it was like wow i was really uh, impressed and i just had a good time my first house show i'd have to say was fall 1995 it was a three show taping at the civic center in salisbury it was two episodes of raw and one episode of superstars and i wrote a piece i talked about that's the night ahmed johnson wrestled three or four times that night and that was the stars that a lineup back then you know when you have sometimes the b crew the a crew but it was diesel it was owen it was brett it was the bulldog <laughs> yokozuna mabel undertaker i think i mentioned razor marty Janetti, one two three kid and there was a few other people i can't remember but it was pretty Pretty much the star-studded group that you'd normally would see on either like a WWF Superstars or All-American Wrestling, Action Zone, WWF Mania, Monday Night Raw, and things like that. And then maybe five or six months later, I get to see WCW live on my birthday and see Hogan, Sting, Flair, Arn, Randy Savage, and things like that. I think seeing them live... It brings a whole different experience as opposed to watching it on television, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun, man. It's just great. I think that after I attended that show, if my memory serves me correct me, it's all around the same time. I did attend the King of the Ring here in 1994. 
that's the one that Owen Hart was. And I was so excited, man, because the first three days they said the show was sold out. And I was watching, I think it was WWE Superstar at the time. At the time, Todd Pettengill was doing his normal promotions for shows during that time. And he had, you know, mentioned that they had made some more seats available. So I had rushed in. I was like, Dad, please, please get me to this show. We got to go to this show. And that was a fun night. That was my first big show ever going to it. Because before that, I would say my first two years as a hardcore wrestling fan, I mostly went to house shows. That was the first big show I'd ever been to was Kingdom Ring 94. And it was it was just a fun night, man. It was just fun because I really felt like I was at a big event at that time as a kid. It was just it was an awesome night. Did you watch stuff like ECW and things like that, the original ECW at that time? Did they have it on uh, where you could watch it? I had heard about ECW. ECW was always like this, you know, like you always hear about this legend. It's like this mythical legend that exists or something like, you know, like, I don't know, like whatever figures, childhood figures you may hear about. That's what, as a wrestling fan, that's what ECW was for me for the longest time. I remember going to Virginia once in like 97 to visit family and they had it. For some reason, it was on down there. And that was the first time that I actually ever seen ECW up close and personal. I'd always heard about how brutal it was and how crazy the product was. But I had never seen it for the first time. It was in 97. And I think it was just like a weekly ECW show because it just wasn't on in a lot of markets. And I think they eventually got a TV deal, but that wasn't until around 2000. That's when they got one. I think this was with what's now Spike TV. And I did watch it then. But I think by then that wasn't the best of ECW. It was still the same product, but it wasn't the best of the product because a lot of their other bigger stars had moved on to WWE or WCW and or they were beginning to deflect and you know I think Paul Heyman was having a hard time you know holding on to his bigger guys and stuff like that which was frustrating even though he did how he was able to do it I don't know he was still able to get guys from the bigger promotions to appear on his shows you know while they were still affiliated with um, the bigger promotions but that's when I actually got a chance to watch ECW on a regular basis. But before then, nope, I didn't order the pay-per-views. I didn't think I could convince my dad to let me order stuff like that. So, I mean, so I just didn't even bother to ask. Because it was just way too violent. And whereas WWF and WCW was at least wholesome enough where I could, you know, expect to watch it or get to attend those shows. But, you know, it was very vulgar. It was very violent. It was just very different. And I think he had to be at a time where WCW and WWF were thriving, certainly at a greater pace than they were. So they had to be different in a way. But now that I have the WWE Network, I can go back and watch that stuff. But it was just hard to really make that connection with them as a child. You talk about the WWE Network. I was able to watch a lot more stuff, especially in the old days. You know, nobody had the money to go pay-per-view. And VCRs and DVD players are sort of out now. Being able to watch a lot of those old stuff, it's funny being able to see some of the pre-Hulk Hogan WCW stuff, it had some very interesting storylines when you push out the RoboCop and all those Beach Blast videos and things like that. But, yeah, it was a very interesting time. In the WWF in around, what, 92, 93, Hogan is sort of slowly disappearing, and he hadn't went to WCW. And there were very interesting storylines in WCW. Flair returning, him versus Ricky Steamboat for the belt, him versus Vader, Ron Simmons versus Vader, all those different things. And able to watch those things now and be able to sort of it helps like put together a giant piece of a puzzle that you weren't able to watch but one thing i'm looking forward to on the network is once they start getting the episodes of superstars up uh-huh uh, because it feels like especially around that time i started watching wwf right 
before SummerSlam 94. So I had missed the Royal Rumble. I missed Owen's heel turn. I missed WrestleMania 10. I missed the casket match between Yokozuna and The Undertaker the first time. And I feel like if you have those Superstars episodes, it fills in a lot of gaps where you're missing pieces and it would help uh, a lot of storylines. I think that's the biggest thing now that you can piece together stuff that you never seen there. Maybe you just joined in on. Yeah. See, I'm familiar with a lot of those storylines that you just said. So, but it's always good to just go back and look back and be like, wow, I remember that. Like, you know what I mean? And like, that was crazy. Like I used to watch those shows. So yeah, like, I mean, to me, I think some of the best work that WWE has ever done was that storyline between Brett and Owen. To me, that was, I think, man, that was right up there with the best storylines they've ever done in the history of the company. I don't think I've seen any storylines today that even come close to being as intriguing as that was because it was such an interesting dynamic because it spoke to a lot of things. Talked about sibling rivalry. I mean, how many people deal with that at some point in their life, right? Even if it's not like brother, sister, maybe it's like an older cousin you look up to or something like that. You know what I mean? Like they're cousins who have sibling rivalry so many people could relate to that storyline right and it just felt so real like i remember when i was still on the impression like that this stuff was actually going on that i was talking with a friend of mine like yeah man i wonder what owen's having thanksgiving because he's not talking to brett and i don't know where he's going to be eating his dinner or his meal i think he's just upset with the whole family and it's just fun when storylines can engage you in that way you know what i mean because that's art it's artful storytelling I, I mean that's some of the best stuff they've ever done he mentioned like you know with undertaker and yokozuna they had a great feud Undertaker just had a tremendous career all around, man. It's just amazing how, how far he went with his career. Just looking back on Superstars, I, I love Superstars. I grew up on Superstars, you know what I mean? And that was the show, <laughs> like, to me. Like, to me, it was better than Raw, you know what I mean? I used to watch all the weekend shows, like that stuff, uh, WCW Saturday Night. What about the, the shows you used to come on Saturday morning? I think it was, like, WCW Worldwide or something. Yeah, WCW um, Pro. It's like, I, Pro, yeah, I think that's what it was, WCW Pro. I think Worldwide was Saturday afternoon. That's what it was from the uh, the MGM Studios or whatever it was. Yeah, I mean, it's like, yo, those weekend shows, I lived for those shows once I got into wrestling, man. I never missed one. <laughs> like, I watched it every week. And, um, you know, it's just like the WWE Network, when you go back and watch this stuff, because I'm more into the vintage content than any of the newer content. That's just me. That's what I like most about the network. But, yeah, when you go back and watch this stuff, it's like it really is like a nice, fun trip down memory lane. It's funny, you were talking about the Brett Nolan rivalry in WWF. One of the best storylines, in my opinion, in WCW pre-NWO was mm -hmm. Dustin and Dusty Rhodes against the Stud Stable. The whole thing started, I think he was fighting Terry Funk, and then Buckhouse Bunk comes in, and then all of a sudden he needs help. He turns on Arn Anderson, and they work out mm -hmm. well as a tag team for a while, and then Arn Anderson turns on him, and then... Dusty comes in and he gets involved and then they go get the nasty boys and they end up having to go in war games. And that's why I think like war games 94 was probably one of the better WCW pay-per-views, even in the Hulk Hogan era, especially before the beginning of the NWO and everything like that. You know, yeah, I need to go back and watch a lot of that stuff. Now that's where I could probably catch up at because I follow WWF more closely than WCW as a kid. Even though I did watch their weekly shows, but I need to watch that. You said, uh, was it War Games 94? I'm yeah, watch you that. probably have to start all the way back to Super Brawl 94 yeah. and just go from there. It has a storyline. That's the other issue with not all the Saturday nights being up because the Saturday nights build the bridges. There's no worldwide. There's no pro. There's no main event because it stretched all the way out through all those shows. And then that Saturday night, it talks about the Dusty Rose promo, which is on YouTube where he talks about, uh, I think it's called The View Never Changes. 
and he mm-hmm. goes into that whole thing. He comes in the ring. He talks about the Earps were blood. The Kennedys were blood. He said the Rose are blood and all those different things. And, and like I said, in that case, that would probably be the balance to that Brett and Owen feud. You have a family being torn apart by a rivalry, but then with the Roses, you have a family coming together after some time of distance. And I feel like that was a very interesting storyline. And the War Games paid off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, WWE actually has some classic pay-per-views. I actually like Super Brawl better than Starcade a lot. And, uh, yeah, they had a lot of good shows. I mean, World War Three, it was a lot to keep up with watching that stuff. But it was unique. It was different. It was innovative. It was a way to be different than the Royal Rumble, right? I mean, they had, like, a lot of good products back then. Like, I always thought, like, even when WWF, the golden years, which I consider the golden years, was, like, the early 90s and stuff, I think that they were really, really good and really intriguing then. WCW also had a good product around that time. They also were good in their own way, you know, and I think that's what's missing from today's industry is like, you know, that that level of competition just isn't there anymore. And you got to look elsewhere for for WWE alternatives. You really got to make an effort. Like you got to subscribe to New Japan or Ring of Honor. To me, that's hard to watch and keep up with. And they have a lot of good things going on, but it's just still not the same that way, you know. But coming up, man, when WWF and WCW were going at it, man, that was just good stuff. Who was your favorite wrestler growing up? Bret Hart. It's funny. A lot of people will say Bret. I know a couple other people who will say Bret as well. And it's funny. In that post-Paul Hogan era, he was the guy. He was a champ. He'd show up every week. He'd wrestle. Like I said, seeing him, some of the guys he'd wrestle, uh, put the title online against Jeff Jarrett and Hakushi and a few other people. Yeah, you don't expect after all those years of barely seeing Hogan on TV, maybe you'll see him do a promo, and then maybe you'll see him maybe wrestle on Saturday night's main event. By the time when Raw started, he was probably on his way towards semi-retirement anyway. But seeing Brett out there every Monday, every Saturday, every Sunday <laughs> yep. on TV, it was very interesting. Yeah, man. I mean, Brett was like another one of those childhood heroes I had coming up. His character was very wholesome, and I always respected Brett's in-ring ability. I always thought he was a tremendous wrestler. You know, I was in New Orleans, and I said that I think, to me, uh, he's a better wrestler, wrestler than Shawn Michaels. I think Shawn Michaels was probably a better showman. I think that uh, they have different styles. I think Brett is more like a ground game wrestler. Shawn does a whole bunch of crazy, overdramatic stuff. But I think that Brett was just, he was more technically sound than Shawn was. And I don't mean that as a knock on Shawn, but, um, you know, that I just feel like that's where they differ. Because Shawn was amazing, great. I'm not taking any away from him. I just think Brett was better in the technical aspects of the game, where Sean was just like a guy who just wanted to go out there and just, you know, take your breath away every step. And, you know, that's the difference between those guys to me, you know, because I think that's a guy that people want most compare Brett to. But I think that Brett's character itself was very wholesome. It was kind of like Hogan in a sense. And I think that Brett, I think that spoke to the job that Vince did in kind of building that character up and creating it. But I think that Brett was a workhorse, too. He was good, and I think he was good for the company when he was in his prime. You know, I feel like somebody who gets sort of overlooked a lot, especially because the era they wrestled in and then how their career stretched along. Randy Savage gets overlooked a lot. I feel like mm-hmm. he was very meticulous in putting matches together. He was a high flyer. Uh, there was always this talk that once Vince sort of put him into that color commentator thing, Randy Savage still had a little bit to go on the tank, especially you see it later when he wrestles DDP later on. But there was talk of he wanted to do maybe like a year-long series with maybe Shawn Michaels where he'd end up putting Shawn over but it would go a whole year and you imagine Randy Savage even as he was slowly getting out of his prime against Shawn Michaels who was slowly entering his prime those could have been some good matches 
Yeah, I've heard that that's what Macho Man wanted to do. And I don't understand why they didn't want to do that. You know what I mean? Like, I think those would have been great matches. I think it could have helped Sean's development at that time, big time. Not that he needed a lot of help, but, I mean, I think that could have been big for him. And I'm sure he probably wouldn't have mind doing it. And I think that it was cool for him to do that because I'm not sure somebody like Hulk Hogan would have wanted to do something like that with Shawn Michaels. Or they even could have had the kind of matches that Randy and Shawn could have had together. I think they would have been great matches. I've seen matches that they've had. They're available on the network. They're on YouTube if you want to, you know, look them up. And the matches went over great. They were good, you know? And, I mean, I think there was also an interesting aspect at the time when, like, Shawn was being managed by uh, Macho Man's former manager, Sherry, when he turned heel. You know, yeah, I think that there was this great dynamic for matches between those guys. And I think that Macho Man, as he proved in WCW, still had a lot to offer the business. And, you know, I think having a nice profile feud that would have been very entertaining between him and Sean would have been great. And I just don't really understand why Vince didn't want to get behind it. I think he made a mistake because I think that that could have been a great feud. And I just don't understand. I feel like Randy Savage was wasted for that year and a half, especially after he comes yeah. back, beats Flair, wins the title, then loses the belt. And Flair ended up being, a, as we were saying, Ric Flair was a transitional champion. But for that moment, he was because then he ended up losing the belt to Bret. I guess they did that in a way. I still think a face versus face, Savage versus Bret Hart would have been interesting for the belt as well, or him versus Mr. Mm-hmm. Perfect versus the belt. It just seems like there's so many mismatchups that while you're struggling, Hogan's not the biggest star, you're dealing with the steroid trial, you could have put on a lot of stuff <laughs> where, you know, you would have an exciting matches either way, and people would have bought it. Yeah, I mean, I don't like how Randy's career ended in WWF. I really don't. I think that they could have done a lot more with him, and I don't know why they didn't lean on him more when Hogan was going through the issues you just spoke of with the steroids, you know, his differences with Vince. But yet they bring Hogan back, and then they put the belt back on him when he comes back. I mean, it just didn't make any sense, and I mean, I don't understand it. I think that that was one of the things that I think that they made a big mistake in because they could have gotten a lot out of Randy Savage, but I think they were just so focused on moving in a new direction, moving, you know, beyond the quote-unquote old-timers, and I don't think they necessarily had to do that with Randy because Randy was still very capable. Randy still kept himself in great shape, and um, I think he could have helped. Oh, yeah, like you mentioned with Brett, he could have had great matches with Brett. Could have great, I think we had excellent matches with Sean and a great feud with Sean. I think that the, the potential was there. All you had to do was just do it, really, because that match has got great reactions from the fans that did see it the few times that he did fight that I know of. And just, yeah, I just think that Vince handled trying to start the new generation very poorly. And the new generation just didn't click either. So it was kind of like bad karma in the sense of doing that. You know what I mean? Because you rushed to get these new stars on TV and they weren't all that great. And, you know, you could have benefited from guys that went on to have these great fresh runs in WCW. They were able to tell new stories, whereas you could have at least gotten another year or two out of Randy Savage. You know, and I think Randy was old more than that from an in-ring standpoint. And they should have just handled the way his career ended there better. Just to stick him on a commentator's table, give him, you know, a match, you know, a crush at WrestleMania and then not do anything with him after that. It just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And what makes it worse is, and everybody says that Vince is trying to go younger, but yet the main event of, I think, King of the Ring 94 was Piper versus Jerry Lawler. That makes no sense at all. Randy Savage could have been utilized. I can see why he wanted to jump ship. One, the money was probably better in down in Atlanta, probably yep. less work time. And then he'd still yep. get to do something. Right. And he was right to do it. And you're absolutely right. And see, a lot of these things also allude to 
the crazy decision making that you would see in future years that you see now and stuff like that. I mean, sometimes Vince doesn't, to me, doesn't make the most sensible decisions when it comes to storylines and how to use talent. And that comes along with the nature of the business. Sometimes, you you know, you just got to go with your gut feeling at that time. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, you bring Roddy Piper back, and then he just, you're right. He's headlining king of the ring. And he closed the show with that, if I'm not mistaken. I think they went on last. Brett and Diesel that night went on before Piper and Lawler. Whereas they probably should have had the spot that Brett and Diesel had in the card. But yeah, I mean, it, I just didn't get it. Then turned around, used Piper again against Goldust in the street fight. Yeah, the street fight. Uh, I think Savage was gone by then, but. I'm not sure that. Yeah, they used Piper a lot over the years, though, right? But yet, but they did use him in the part time capacity. And see, that's something that Randy wasn't interested in either. Randy wanted to be a full time guy. He still felt like he had title reigns to have in WWE, which I agree with. You know what I mean? Whereas Piper was probably just happy with doing those little bits, like a little spat with Lawler and then you come in and then you do the thing with Gold Dust at WrestleMania twelve. And sure, I mean Randy Savage could have done that, but I think Randy Savage proved in World Championship Wrestling that he had a lot more to offer than that. And I think that that could have helped. I just think that that was the wrong way to use a guy because they had me thinking that he was done. I was like, well, damn, maybe Randy just is done. I was thinking as as a fan watching it, like, yeah, he must be because they never use him. They always have him calling matches. I'm like, okay, this is it for him. And then he goes to WCW and he still has these great matches, has one of the best feuds of his career with DDP. And I think that, you know, he just showed a lot. And, you know, I think that Vince, he really messed up with Randy Savage towards the end of his career. Use him great early on, I thought, because he had some memorable, a lot of memorable bonus early on, but the way it ended was just a disgrace to me. It just makes me think of underutilizing wrestlers. I feel like if he didn't get hurt and he didn't get fired, I feel like you could have made a Stone Cold in WCW with Stone Cold. Because what you do is you have Steve Austin sort of middle road character just sort of there, and then you put him in the DDP role where he fights off the NWO. I feel like it works. You know, maybe what they do is they attack him, they shave his head, and then that starts the transition to Stone Cold like Sting's transition did. And I feel like you can imagine Sting, DDP, Austin fighting off the NWO. That could have been an interesting storyline, but, you know, it wasn't a fit. Yeah, I mean, I'm just of the opinion that Stone Cold isn't born without Vince McMahon, period. Like, if I think that the way he was used in WCW, like, I had no clue that he could be what Stone Cold Steve Austin was. Like, I always thought of him as, like, Brian Pillman's tag team partner. And that was it. And the guy who defended the U.S. championship every so often, and but was clearly fixated as a middle-of-the-pack kind of guy. And I never looked at him on any promotion as a main eventer. And it's because of how he was used in WCW, and I don't think people were smart enough to use him in the right way. But when he gets to WWE, and he's still showing me that when he comes in as the ringmaster, I'm like, okay, this, this is more the same stuff. And then, you know, they finally change his name. And then, you know, but slowly but surely, his character just catches on. It catches on. That's Vince, That was all Vince McMahon. That was his genius. And, of course, you got to give Austin credit for breathing life into that character. I'm not trying to take anything away from him like that. But it was Vince McMahon's genius that elevated him to the top of the business. And I think that if he had stayed in WCW, I mean, could he have had a world title run? Maybe. But I don't think it would have been a great run. I don't think it would have been impactful for WCW. I feel like his stint in ECW as superstar Steve Austin really started getting him going into being able to 
bare his soul and talk about his past grievances in WCW. And I feel like even in WWF, you mentioned as the ringmaster, they really didn't know what to do with him. They were talking about coming up different names that would make him calculated and all this stuff. And before the Stone Cold, which apparently came from his ex-wife, one of the names that they came, well, they came up with a couple of different names like Ice Dagger and Chili McFreeze. And, you know, anybody who sort of knows or if you have ever talked to anyone about the Chili McFreeze thing, it just evokes laughter. But when he yeah. came up with the Stone Cold Steve Austin character, that was the first step. Then the change in the gimmick and then having that foil and Bret Hart to play off of, which really helped build his popularity and then going with Vince. I know everybody looks at his rivalry with Vince, but I think the double turn in that match with Bret solidified his path. Yeah, it did. I think that really put him over the top. That match made Stone Cold to me. That's what set up his big crowning moment the following year when he uh, defeated Shawn Michaels for the world title. That was like, okay, like this guy's on his way now. Because that was just an awesome match. That was an incredible match. That was one of the best matches I've ever seen. And the story that those guys told and Austin's performance that night was off the charts. It just put everything else to shame. It's like, I don't even need to see anything else on this card. Because really, that was the best thing going on that card. Because the card was pretty lame otherwise. But that will always put WrestleMania 13 in the memory banks of professional wrestling fans because that match was just off the charts. It really, to me, it was even more of a crowning moment for, for Austin, even in defeat, technically, that was a defeat, than winning the King of the Ring. King of the Ring was a part of his story, but it's like, man, that match with Brett just took it to another level. I think those matches he had with Brett were just, they were classic, they were good, and I think that was the best wrestler that Austin has worked with other than The Rock. Speaking of King of the Ring, I mean, and the only reason he won the King of Ring because of the curtain call of the Madison Square Garden, which <laughs> Triple H was supposed to win that, and his punishment right. was to lose it. And also, talking about the WrestleMania match, I think the whole Mike Tyson thing surrounding it, that also added another level to that match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did. It wasn't a great match. I don't know. I think Deshaun was in some kind of funk around that time. I'm not sure exactly what was going on, but I heard some rumblings like he was throwing a fit about not wanting to drop the belt to Austin at one point. You know, those are things I'm just hearing. Like, I could just tell that Sean was just in a bad place. I don't think he was feeling the best physically because I think around the time he hurt his back in that casket match with The Undertaker. And like Vince said, it got the job done, but Austin, from what I've heard, he wasn't thrilled with the actual match itself. The only mistake I think that all Tyson made was that quick three count. That was it. I mean, like, that was a quick three count, man. Someone should have told him to do a more slower count to build up the anticipation of Austin winning that championship. But, yeah, Tyson, to me, here's the thing about Mike Tyson. His involvement with the WWE elevated the company's profile and got the attitude error off to the start it needed to get off to. And Tyson was instrumental in that way because – it created a buzz, man. I mean, it created a buzz about it, and, and WWE was able to to get the attention of a lot of people, and it helped the company develop a new edge, right? And I think that his appearance and his involvement with the company at that time, particularly when they were obviously on the verge of, of making Austin the guy, his involvement was key to the start of the Attitude Era, and I think that's overlooked a lot. So, yeah, I mean, it was entertaining. It was good stuff. That whole initial spat when Austin and Tyson got into it and Tyson shoved them and everybody had to break up, man, that was good stuff. That was good stuff, man. And, I mean, just, just Tyson's involved. It just brought a new buzz 
to the cup after everything that happened with the Montreal thing and everything. It was just fun to watch. How do you think that compares to Dennis Rodman and Carmelo getting the ring in WCW? I know there was a little bit of prominence when Dennis Rodman was wrestling Luger in that tag team match because you saw it on ESPN as well. How do you think mm -hmm. maybe that compares to that? It wasn't as fun. <laughs> like it wasn't, it wasn't as fun as the Tyson deal. I think Vince probably could have done a better job. But at the end of the day, I think that WCW got out of their business deal with Carmelo and Dennis Rodman what they wanted. I mean, these are NBA guys, guys that played for, I guess, you know, arguably the two best teams in the league at that time. And that of itself is going to get you publicity. So it, it got that done, but I don't think they had the creative minds to really get much more out of it than what they got out of it in WCW, to be frank with you. I think they got as best as they were going to get out of that deal. It was fun to watch. It was cool. Like it always is when you see celebrities and wrestlers intertwine. But I think that possibly Vince could have gotten a little bit more out of it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, though. Maybe he could have probably gotten the same thing out of it. But it wasn't like watching the Mike Tyson interact with Stone Cold by any means. Before we go talking to your WrestleMania experiences, I wanted to just maybe ask you a little bit of word association with some of these wrestlers and ask you your thoughts on certain things. Who do you think was the wrestler with the best Mike skills? Oh, man. Let me think about that for a second. Um, Jake the Snake Roberts, probably. I think he probably told the best stories on the mic, and he gave some of the most believable, smooth performances. Like a friend of mine told me that he said, you know, the thing about Jake Roberts is that he didn't have to raise his voice much to get his point across. You know how most wrestlers have to yell their voice or get hype or elevate their voice to really make sure that the impact of what they're delivering to the audience is heard and felt? Jake the Snake had to do that. I mean, he could talk in the calmest voice ever and tell the most powerful, impactful story that could send chills down your spine kind of deal. So I will probably, in my opinion, probably Jake the Snake. Which wrestler had the most intense promo? Because you know, always different between who is the best promo guy as opposed to who had the most intensity. Oh, without a doubt, Randy Savage. Randy Savage's promos were intense, man. They were, I mean, goodness gracious. Like, those things were just intense. I've seen a lot of intense guys on the mic, but I like a lot of guys qualify for that. But to me, it was Macho Man. Who do you feel was the worst promo? Probably the Ultimate Warrior. I mean, when I look back on it. But I don't know if that was just all him. Because I think when I watched this DVD a couple of years later and he described those promos, I don't know if he was just trying to give himself an excuse or what, but he mentioned that part of that Ultimate Warrior character was being somewhat maniacal in how he spoke and just being, like, otherworldly. You know, I mean, my goodness, they built the characters from parts unknown, right? So, I mean, like, when you look at it from that perspective, I was like, yeah, you know what? It kind of makes sense now when I watch the promos, but you just didn't really get the promos. He wasn't completely terrible, but I think that his mic work left a lot to be desired, but I don't know, man. He still just has had that appeal. People give Ahmed Johnson a bad rap. They always talk about mm -hmm. marble mouth, and you can't understand what he's saying. But just by if you go to WWF Warzone on the original PlayStation, and I feel like those two should be intertwined. They had similar reputations, apparently. There was a talk mm -hmm. that they weren't fully invested in it. They had bad attitudes. People would get hurt in the ring because of their carelessness. And they both were hot-shotted because you think Ahmed was probably a couple chances away from wrestling for the WWF title. Yeah, I've heard that before. I've read that before. And I think that they said that Vince had plans for him, and I'm not sure why they never quite materialized. They did give him the Intercontinental Championship. I thought that was a pretty big deal for him. And I think that they probably could have used him as a bigger main event type player, especially in 96 when business was you know, struggling with the rise of the NWO and stuff like that. 
Yeah, um, his promos, they weren't the greatest, but I mean, I wasn't completely turned off by them. I think that he tried to deliver good promos, coherent promos. I mean, you know, but the guy was in phenomenal shape in his prime. And I felt like, and I've heard him say in some interviews that, you know, because if you notice, he was one of those high-flying big guys for a little bit, right? And he said he had to tone that down because he said Shawn Michaels had a problem with him doing that stuff because Sean's big deal was being aerial and being stuff like that. And I guess he took difference with him doing those things. And I guess he felt like, you know, this is what Ahmed said. I can only tell you what I heard. He said that felt like it wouldn't look as, you know, Sean's aerial ability would look as impressive if Ahmed could do it. Because I remember early on, Ahmed was like flying over the top ropes and doing stuff like that. And he was showing that he could be that too. And, you know, a unique blend of that and power. But but I think that Ahmed's career, I don't think it reached the heights that he wanted and expected and that Vince wanted and expected. And I'm not really sure why that was. Because I feel like 96 was a good year to really try to give him a good push. It's funny you mentioned uh, high-flying big guys, and I think of Vader. That might have been the reason that Vader didn't get a big of a run in the WWF, just because, mm-hmm. well, among other things, there's always the talk that as a sign of superstition in Japan, you don't wash your wrestling gear. So the biggest <laughs> issue is, and I think Jim Cornette on one of his podcasts talked about how he had Vader grab him by the lapel of the jacket, and like all this dirt off Vader's glove came off, and it was all on Cornette's jacket. And you could see all this black stuff all on Cornette's jacket. And it basically was like no good anymore. Yeah, I've heard that kind of stuff too about Vader. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand, you know, that whole theory about you know washing your gear. I, I would imagine if you're a wrestler, you should wash your gear regularly. But yeah, I've heard some weird stuff like that about Vader. Um, no disrespect to him and his memory and legacy, but I've heard stuff like that for sure. And um, wrestler um, shoot interviews that I've listened to from time to time on YouTube, and you know, I think Brett has alluded to that. A lot of other wrestlers have too. So I, I was, it's kind of weird. I don't know what the deal was with all of that. Who do you think was the most underrated high flyer? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I I think that most high flyers who deserve respect get respect. I don't know if there's one that comes to mind, an underrated high flyer. Um, Hmm. I don't know. One doesn't come to mind. Do you have one in mind? I was going to say Too Cold Scorpio. I feel like he didn't get his due. Then he was Flash Funk later on, but I feel like... He didn't get his due as like a, a preeminent high flyer like you saw maybe Rey Mysterio or Shawn Michaels or yeah. guys well, like them. Well, to be fair, those guys were better aerial performers than the Tuco Scorpio. Listen, I love Tuco Scorpio. I did. Honestly, like, I'm be real. I was kind of feeling the Flash Funk character a little bit. He had his, you know, his, his two ladies, his two groupies that came out with him. All right. I mean, they were jamming for a little bit. I was feeling it for a little bit until I realized, okay, Vince has no real plans for this character. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if Tuco was as good as those guys were, like Sean and, and like a Ray Mysterio or somebody like that. But, yeah, I think you do have a point. I think that he is a kind of a forgotten figure in wrestling, and he shouldn't be, especially in, in terms of WCW's lineage. You know what I mean? I mean? He did ECW for a while, too. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Did he go to ECW for Yeah, he was okay. in between. Okay, yeah, so he, he came with that. the job squad and, and Flash Flunk. Yeah, he deserves respect in this industry. And I think that um, he did have good ability. I think he could put on good matches. I think that more so than being an underrated high fly, I think he was an underrated performer in general. I feel like they missed the boat pairing him with the Godfather. If you're going to go all out with that gimmick, you should have paired him with the Godfather. I've never thought about that. Wow. Yeah, that would have been fun. That would have been a lot of fun. I think he could have gotten over. They could have done so many things with that. They could have possibly had a nice little tag team run. They could have, I don't know, start some kind of escort business together or something. I don't know. I don't know what, you know, Vince would have had in store for those guys. But 
That would have been fun. I've never thought about that. That's ironic. I think you're right. I think that would have been great. That could have been the reemergence of Flashpoint. They could have just brought him back in. And even if it was just to do a deal with Godfather for like maybe half a year, a year, a little more than a year or something like that, I think that would have been great. And I think it could have been fun. I think it could have been a lot of things. But I don't know. Maybe they just wanted to keep all the attention on the Godfather, Charles Wright. And I don't know. I guess that's what they wanted to do. Because I feel like you you have the high flyer, you have the power. You don't see that many mixed combo teams. Maybe you'll see either a team of high flyers or you'll see a team of technical guys or you'll see a team like Fire and Ice with Ice Train and Scott Norton of like just all power. But I feel like a combination like that would have been very interesting. It would have been. And I, you know, I wish I could have seen that. That's something they should have explored, possibly. I mean, like I said, that could have put a, a tag team strap. I mean, even though I think they did, um, the Godfather did end up winning a championship, but I think it was a member that's a right to censor the tag team title. But yeah, that would have been fun. That would have been off the charts fun. Best underrated mid-90s tag team pairing. The best underrated? Yeah, mid-90s. Yeah, if we go mid-90s up to 2000. That never quite achieved success? Something or, like that? Or didn't or... get their due. Or you feel like, man, this was actually a decent team that I didn't think would work, but worked. Um, Owen and Jeff, that worked. I was really surprised by how well that worked. I didn't have huge doubts that that was a good pairing, but I was surprised at how well they worked together. I thought that was a great team. I like that tag team. I thought they had good chemistry. They worked really well together. I'm sure there'll be other ones that'll come to mind. It's hard to really, maybe let me think of WCW. I can't really think. See, because WCW, they just weren't as invested in tag team wrestling after a while as WWE was. Because I think that at the time when WWE, they've always been invested in tag team wrestling, I think. And they've always done a good job of, of putting good teams together. I can tell you one team that I thought had good potential but never got off the right way was Lex and Davey. Oh, yeah. I, I was kind of feeling that pairing at first when they put together. I was like, you know what? This could be a serious team. I was feeling it. The Ally Powers, I think they could have done more with that. I think they could have did some more. But I, I like that pairing, but it just never really jumped off like that. Rock and Sock, good uh, connection, right? <laughs> that was good stuff, man. I mean, like, they got great materials. So I put them right up there with um, Owen and Jeff. You put those guys together, I mean, damn, you could probably make a whole DVD just off of those two alone. And those are probably teams that come to mind to me right away. I was going to say D'Lo and Mark Henry. I like that team. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, that was a good team. That was another good team. But I wasn't surprised that they worked well together because they worked well together in the nation. You know what I mean? They had a good success together. Maybe they did have a longer run than I thought that that WWE would give them. But, man, they were entertaining. They had some entertaining storylines. And you talk about a good combination of skills. I mean, you got the aerial stuff from D'Lo, the power from Mark, just like you mentioned, like with a potential pairing with Tuco Scorpio and the Godfather. Yeah, that was a good team too. I wasn't overly surprised that they were old. And I like Stars and Stripes. I feel like watching those mid-90s WCW, it was basically Stars and Stripes versus Pretty Wonderful every week, and they're going for the belt. And I feel like that team worked out well. I don't know if there was any issues between the Patriot and Buff Bagwell, but I think that was a team that worked out extremely well. I agree. Yeah, because I was struggling to think of a WCW team. Because I mostly like WCW tag teams. Hall of Fame, loved Hall of Fame. Really liked what they were doing. A couple other teams there in that time as well. I'll tell you what, though. Hall and Nash, they worked out surprisingly well, too. Because I didn't know if they really wanted them to be a tag team or if they were just bringing them together just to get the NWO off the ground and then just let them compete as singles wrestlers in NWO. But they ran with it. They ran with them as a tag team. And that went well. They were a good tandem, man. Like, you know what I'm saying? And... I was really surprised at how well they worked together. So that's another standard I thought that went well, too. 
you always sort of get lost with Harlem Heat, as you mentioned, and mm-hmm. the Steiner Brothers and the Nasty Boys. And yeah. I feel like on the WWF side, there's, you know, you had a bunch of teams grouped together that were just sort of there, like the Head Shrinkers, the Bushwhackers, um, the Headbangers, and things like that. But Yeah, like the Headbangers, yeah. I mean, they, I mean, but the thing about it is, is that, you know, those teams that you named, they all seem to fit well together. Like the Head Shrinkers seem to fit well together. I like the Head Shrinkers personally. I thought they were cool. And I like, who was it? Was it Alpha who was managing them? I think Alpha was for a point then, Captain Lou yeah, after Alpha that. Man, and then Simon Fuchs. I like I liked the Headbangers. Um, the Headbangers, eh, man, whatever. I mean, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, but they, they seemed to fit well together. Martian Thrasher, I think it was, or something. I don't know. I think that WWF, they did tag team wrestling really well. What was your favorite belt that you feel like should be brought back? Um... I don't think they necessarily need to bring it back, but I was always a fan of the winged belt. I'm almost considering buying that thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I've always been a fan of the winged belt, the one that Hogan had, the one that Brett had, you know, the, the ringed world title. I always liked that belt. I never liked the designs, the new designs they tried to do for Intercontinental Championship, but they eventually went back to the old design, which I think works. You know what I mean? Because they tried to, like, I remember when the Attitude Era first jumped off and The Rock was the Intercontinental Champion, and they gave him the ugliest inner-looking Intercontinental belt I had ever seen. The circular one, the oval one. Yeah, that belt was ugly. I mean, it was just like, what is this, man? I'm like, where's the other belt go? I'm like, the other belt was perfectly fine. Well, what are they doing? Then you saw they bring in a new world belt. I mean, Vince was just trying to go brand new everything. I thought that the world belt that they gave Stone Cold was okay. Smoking Skull belt, that was a good belt. But the other belt, too, they gave him that other that big world title, the one that replaced the winged title. It was okay. I mean, it wasn't bad. But I know what they were trying to do. They wanted to actually look like a big world title, kind of like WCW. WCW's belt was great. I always thought that their, their world championship belt was the best because it actually looked like a real world title. I mean, I don't miss the European title or anything like that. I mean... That was an okay championship while it lasted, but I don't think they need to bring that back. And then plus now they're exploring United Kingdom territory with NXT and stuff like that. But I tell you, I'm not the biggest fan of the Universal Championship, and not just because Brock Lesnar is just not defending it. It's just like it's pointless to me to have two world titles under one company. I'm just like they need to, you know, they're going to do split brands. I don't know how they would do it, but they have to figure out how to work that out because I'm just like, look, I mean, at least make it about one world championship. Let's not bring in a whole bunch of championships for every show you know that's why i don't really i'm not the biggest fan of, of the split brand but you know it is what it is i mean uh, i like a lot of the championships they had the john cena spinning medallion was cool a lot of things it is they've done some creative things with championships over the years when it comes to belts i like the wcw u.s title version i feel like mm-hmm. it has a little more prestige than the one that they use now in wwe but the one that yeah. austin and ricky steamboat and jim duggan won there's one of those things like sesame street one of those things does not sound like the other and it's jim duggan as the u.s champ but that belt yeah. is on <laughs> like if you play wwe uh, 2k 17 18 that wcw u.s belt design i think it's flawless yeah, I wish they could replace the one that they have now. I don't know why Vince doesn't want to do that. He might come around. I mean, he's come around in the past with previous designs. He might, but I think he should because I like that that belt way better than the one that's there now. now. I think it would be a good homage to the true lineage of that title, you know what I mean, if they were to do that. Um, not that Vince owes that to, to Ted Turner or anybody or WCW or anybody like that, but, I mean, I think it would be cool to see that. Why not? You know what I mean? I mean, he used WCW's world belt for years. Why not bring back the U.S. championship? And a belt I also thought that should be brought back that they don't use is the TV title. And I know it's easy to build some heat. You know, so-and-so wrestles a match. They got 15 minutes 
And if you can't beat them, they hold on to the belt. You get those countdown, those three, two, ones, and the pin is going on as the countdown's going on. I feel like that would be a nice way to make storylines or a lot of dusty finishes at least. But maybe you modernize it. Maybe you do like I think they were going to do with Zack Ryder, like an internet title. Maybe sort of take the TV title concept and do it as a match, like on Facebook Live, like they were doing with the Mixed Match Challenge. I like that concept. I do. I like that concept. That'd be cool. Shoot, you know what? I wish you could run that up the, the ladder to Vince because that's a cool idea, especially when you you know compare that to uh, what they did with the TV title. I was thinking about the TV title, but I'll tell you one thing, what the TV title did. One of the things when I first started watching wrestling that I actually didn't like about WCW was that they had too many championships. I thought they had too many championships. They had the world belt. They had the United States belt, which was like the equivalent of the Intercontinental Championship, right? Mm -hmm. Then they had the TV belt. Then they had the Cruiserweight Championship. Then they had the Tag Team Championships. I was just like, man, this is just a lot of championships going around. I actually liked it that WWE only had three championships. But then they got into the championship business. They added the European title. Then they added the uh, the lightweight championship because then teams are just looking at, well, the more belts we have, the more chances that wrestlers have to get over, right? And I get that part of it, but I kind of liked it when WWE only had three championships. And it's funny, WCW also had, after Flair getting fired and taking the belt with them, they had to make the WCW International and you had the WCW one. So you had two world titles. I think Rude was the, the world champ and then somebody else was the international one. And it was just so confusing. And then they had to add that unification between Sting and Flair right before Hogan ended up winning the world belt. Yeah, I mean, I think that they just, you know, the wrestling championships themselves, they have so many, they have a lot of riches. TV championship, it was like, man. I, to me, I was just like, that's just an excuse to have a belt because I'm like, damn, I mean, how do they feel safe about you when they don't even feel safe enough to put the damn U.S. belt on? I mean, some championships just felt safer putting on other wrestlers. Like, it probably was nothing to give. Now, I'm not sure if you ever held this title, like, to give, like, I don't know, Disco Inferno the, the TV title. What's the harm, right? Whereas in, in WWE, it was more risk involved with putting championships on guys because there was so few of them, you know what I mean? And that's what made it winning a big deal. But now, I mean, you know, you can go different avenues. If you can't win the women's championship and, and on Raw, you can go over to SmackDown and try to beat Carmella for it. <laughs> if you can't, you know, win the Intercontinental Championship, you can go for the U.S. title or something like that. You know, you can't win tag team championship on Raw, hop over to SmackDown, see if you can win it over there. I mean, it just kind of defeats the purpose. I think that you know, the fewer championships you have, the more prestigious they can appear to be. But that's just my opinion, you know. And I mean, it's not going to slow down now. They're, they're introducing more championships by the day. I'm even hearing anything about bringing in some, some women's tag team title. That is what it is. But, I mean, they're obviously tools to help the wrestlers get over. But I think that, you know, the, the limited number of championships also can elevate their importance, which can help a character out, if that makes any sense. Jumping away from wrestling for a second before we go back into you visiting WrestleMania, I would go a little off topic. I know that I see you on Facebook. You talk about the show Power a lot. How does that compare to maybe a show like Empire? I've heard those comparisons a lot. I don't get why they're making the comparison between the shows. I think they're two totally different shows. I think that one show focuses on a family's musical business. And I think another show focuses on a kingpin's desire to leave the game behind and start a life as a legit businessman. I don't get the comparisons. I don't know why folks always want to lump 
Empire and Power into the same conversation because these are two different shows. I guess it has something to do with 50 Cent starting his own beef with Empire, but I mean, when does 50 Cent never start a beef with somebody, right? I mean, it's just, it is what it is. I mean, I think that's why I think that 50 Cent says something along the lines of they use similar promotional tactics for Empire, which I'm like, I mean, people steal stuff from each other all the time. I'm not sure what he meant by it per se, but you know, that's what it is. But I think that they're two different shows. I happen to, to like Power better than Empire, but I watch Empire. But I just think that these are two totally dynamics. They both should be able to coexist because they're not exactly the same. It's funny you talk about in Hollywood, it seems like people steal ideas. If I say, name a show involving six people living in an apartment building in New York, what's the first show that comes to mind? Friends. Really? I'm surprised. I was always going to say living single because I was thinking, I think the exact opposite. I mean, I don't even know that that was the case with Friends. I don't know, but that's what I would say. Um, I don't know why Living Single doesn't come to mind. I love Living Single. Don't get me wrong. Um, I love that show, but uh, yeah, I don't know why that comes to mind, but that's what I think of if someone says that. Yeah, and I think Living Single maybe started six months to a year before Friends. I mean, I think that obviously, you know, listen, black folks can relate to Living Single more. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I know I can relate to Living Single more. Not the time that I was watching it because I was just a kid. But when I look back on it now, it's just like, yeah, I mean, the main character was a writer. She owned her own magazine. I love that about Living Single. <laughs> Probably more than anything else. But he also delved into real relationship issues and stuff like that and real issues that folks encounter on a daily basis. Not saying the friends didn't. I've never watched Friends, to be honest with you. But yeah, I mean, Living Single, I thought. They came on at a time when I think that they were helping to elevate the Fox network. And I think they did a damn good job of doing it. I feel like that Fox lineup in the early 90s, it probably had some of the shows on the Fox network in Living Color, Martin, New York Undercover, Living Single, even Married with Children, were more appealing than the standard shows, The Simpsons as well, that you would have seen on the other three networks that were maybe running more safer shows. Yeah, because I remember watching, I think it was like some kind of TV special on TV One about New York Undercover. And I don't know if you recall, you remember the changes they made to that show? They killed off one of the detectives. They just made it a completely different show than what fans were used to, right? Because they just felt like the appeal wasn't big enough. The urban appeal of the show, like where you have rappers on, you have some NBA players uh, making celebrity appearances. Remember they used to close every show with a new musical guest? Yeah. Um, Stuff like that. I like that about that. I like the coolness that they were trying to add to the show with the uh, the characters, with um, Eddie and uh, the other detective. You know what I mean? Like, it was different, but it was fresh, and it was new. And I think the appeal was bigger than what Fox recognized at the time. But one of the actors from the show had mentioned, like, nowadays, like, you know, whereas they were trying to make a bigger appeal, and they were trying to take away some of that urban appeal, now it's all over the place with Empire. They're not trying to change Empire. They're letting Empire be what it was. But I think it was just different times. And I think that they were trying to, to basically be pioneer-type shows, in a sense. They were trying to usher in new eras in entertainment television. And I feel like Shows like New York Undercover and Martin and Living Single, they paved the way for Empire in so many ways. You know what I mean? And they deserve a lot of credit for the success that Empire is receiving because they all paved the way, not just for Empire, for a lot of other shows that can be themselves and producers don't have to jump in and make changes that just don't make any sense for the sake of trying to make it more appealing to people overseas and all this other stuff. I was looking up New York Undercover. I did not know Tommy Ford from Martin was on the final season and they killed Mm -hmm. off Eddie in season three. They made a lot of bad decisions. The actors suggested that those changes were made because they wanted to increase the appeal of the show. And I thought watching the show, like, this is a great show. Like, why are they trying to change what works? They had Tommy Ford come in. They had some new detectives that brought nothing to the show come in. The storyline with Eddie was just ridiculous. It had good shock value, I tell you that. 
But I think that for what they were trying to do, it made no sense. And I think that at the time, like, I understood that better watching that TV One show. Like, yeah, I guess, okay, that made sense. I didn't understand why they were making the changes that they were making. And it didn't even get an extension beyond that season in which there were new changes. It got canceled. And they wonder why. Because it got away from what worked. And I think fans were turned off by what they were trying to give them because it's not the show that fans were originally invested in. But I think that for some reason, like, you know, network like Fox was unwilling to present shows in a certain way. And at the time, they just wanted a show to be loved by everyone everywhere. And they just didn't think that show that was rooted in Urban Appeal could do that. That's just my opinion. And that's why I was mostly happy for a show like Empire Success because Empire is being what it wants to be. And I think that it took shows like New York Undercover going through those early lumps for a show like Empire to get greenlit. I think what you do, you build your, the WB did that as well. Build up your urban audience and then once you get them and then switch in different kind of television show that helps get mass appeal. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that's always the goal. You want everybody everywhere to love what you do. Like, all kinds of different countries. And who says they don't? Like, when The Wire was on TV, I mean, there were people all over the world watching that, that was familiar with The Wire, right? You know, you don't know what anybody anywhere is watching, but it can have an appeal. But I think you just got to have let a show be of itself and stop trying to make it anything else because people want to watch something that feels original, that feels different, right? And it doesn't feel forced. Like, they're just trying to do things like, we got to put a white cop here just because. You know, you tell the story that you want to tell. And I think that when producers and show creators are allowed to tell the stories that they want to tell uninterrupted, that makes for the best television. Are you big into science fiction? Um, Not really. <laughs> like i mean somewhat sometimes but not really it's not my favorite genre going back to the earlier conversation talk about if you watch wrestling you know if someone likes star wars that's their prerogative it's not like you're going to make a big deal over it yeah i mean like i think that it's all about what you're into you know what i mean and i think that you know you have to put something out there i think entertainment should all be about diversity right you need a lot of, of different options you need whether it's science fiction whether it's comedy whether it's crime drama whether it's you know, romance. I don't know. I mean, like, it's all about what you like. I like a lot of different genres. I'm into some science fiction. Some, right? But not all. And, you know, but there are times where I can go for that if, if the story is told in an appealing way that I find appealing. Is there a particular science fiction, I guess, genre that you like? What comes to mind? I don't know if any come to mind. I don't know if any of them come to mind. Does Alien count as a science fiction? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I like the Alien movies. Um, I thought those were pretty good. I'm sure there are probably others I'm missing. I'll be like, oh yeah, that one. But those are probably some of the ones that come to mind. What about like Predator and Terminator? I like Predator. I actually, <laughs> I like Predator 2 better than I like the first one. You know, I love Predator. Predator was cool. And uh, you said, what was the other one? Uh, Terminator. Terminator. Oh, yeah. How can I forget that? See, it's just like when they come to mind. Yeah, I love Terminator. Again, I like the second one better than the first one with Terminator. I didn't like the other ones that came after one, like the one like Salvation. And, you know, they made a Terminator 3 all those years later. I I wasn't feeling that. But Terminator 2, to me, was one of the best movies of all time in my mind it's weird like with some movies you'll see the second one and then comparing it to the first one you know everybody has a different opinion the second one might be better as opposed to the first one it's like for example like a movie like major league i like number two and i like number one and it's very funny but for me number two is the first one i saw and it's embedded in your memory right yeah it is more memorable yeah in that way i agree i mean and listen, like, Terminator 1, it told a good story. I mean, I'm not saying it was a bad movie, but I just happen to think the second one was better. That's one of the few ones where I feel like I've seen a sequel and I thought, damn, that was actually better than the original movie. Because you rarely get to say that in life. You know what I mean? Because usually the second ones are usually all about making money. You know they're never going to quite live up to what that first one was. Because if something 
leaves you wanting a sequel, it means it was that good. And in, in theory, it means you should probably leave it alone, right? But it's a chance to make money. It's a chance to give actors more work. And it's never going to quite be what that original was. Are you big into comic book movies? Yeah, some of them. I like some of the Marvel movies. I've been getting into that more recently with, like, uh, The Avengers and Black Panther. I was into Spider-Man. I liked the, the ones with Tobey Maguire in it better than the ones that they're making now. I personally thought that that original trilogy they did, that was excellent. I love the early Batman movies with Michael Keaton. I'm not a fan of the Batman movies they do now, like the ones they did with, you know, Batman Begins and so forth and so on. I, you know, I just really couldn't get into those. But yeah, I, mean, I like comic book movies too. For curiosity's sake, have you seen Black Lightning? No, I haven't. I- I haven't watched it, but I always joke just by looking at it that it has the sensibility of maybe like Luke Cage, but the look, uh, at least the look of like uh, Meteor Man. Wow, I should check that out. <laughs> I like, I love Meteor Man. man. At least the co- at least the costume looks like Meteor Man. Maybe it's a deeper sociological thing like Luke Cage is, but what you can do on network television as opposed to Netflix. But yeah, just the that. costume is the biggest yeah. drawback to me. Yeah, I gotta check that out. I wonder. I don't know if a lot of people don't know if like uh, the Media Man was actually shot in Baltimore. I wonder if a lot of people actually know that, but I don't know. That's a fun fact. Just in case anyone didn't know that it was shot in Baltimore. It took place in D.C. I think, but it was shot here. It's funny when you look at that cast. All the people that were in that movie: James Earl Jones, Bill Cosby, Marla Gibbs. I feel like mm-hmm. there's so many other people that I haven't mentioned. Yeah, Robert Towson, Luther Vandross was in that movie. Oh yeah. Who else? Don Cheadle was in that movie. Who else? Chris Tucker had like a two-second role. Did you mention the guy who played Benson? Oh, yeah, Robert Guillaume, right? Uh, yeah, he was in that. Yeah, damn, it actually had a star-studded cast in it. I didn't realize it had that many people in it. I actually liked it. I thought it was a nice movie. I, my dad actually took me to the theater to see that movie. Sinbad was also in it as well. Sinbad was in it, yep. He was in that movie. He was in it. It actually had a funny... Sinbad is always funny, man. I like Sinbad. Oh, and Eddie Griffin. Eddie Griffin, yep. I mean, there, was, there were a lot of people in that movie. Yeah, Phase on Love, Bismarcky, John Witherspoon. Yeah. It's funny, Tiny Lister, he's also in there. He's the only person that has, like, three different nicknames. Yeah. That dude is something else, man. I mean, he's funny as I don't know what. He did a few movies I like. Obviously, everybody knows him from Friday and all that stuff. But, yeah, I mean, he, most of the projects he's been in have been generally pretty decent, considering that. But he's a funny character, too. Hollywood's bully. <laughs> <laughs> Tiny Zeus Lister, and then everybody else will call him Debo. Debo, yep. I either call him Zeus or I call him Debo. One of the two. Have you seen No Whole Bar? That's because where I think more of the Zeus character comes from. You said which one was that again? Uh, no Whole Bar with Hulk Hogan? I think I seen it years ago. I haven't seen it recently. You know, they should put that on WWE Network. I wish they could. <laughs> like, put that on there. Yeah, that's where that whole thing came from. But he looked like he was menacing in that movie, right? And, yeah, they tried to bring some of that WWE for a little bit. But, yeah, it was, wasn't a bad movie. It was okay. I mean, I guess that that movie, if I have to, to guess, probably helped set the precedent for what WWE would try to do with its own film adventures. You know what I mean? Get their actors involved in these kinds of movies and then kind of transition them over to other um, their own kind of entertainment products. That's how I look at it. Apparently, I found that Noel Bar was on WWE Network, and then after Hogan's little incident, they took it all. Oh, so, yeah. And I think Rock and Wrestling, his cartoon show, was on too. Oh, yeah, so they might try to bring that back now because I already was reinstated. Okay, that'd be cool. I mean, probably should have blow to hell. They put him back in the Hall of Fame, even though he was still in my WrestleMania program. Okay. 
But I mean, you know, you know, but yeah, now he's officially back in, and I guess they can just go and bring all the other stuff back too. Okay. I'm not sure how many wrestling channels you watch on YouTube, but there's this one channel called Wrestling with Regret. So they did a review of No Holds Barred, and the guy, as soon as uh, Zeus Lister shows up, he pulls that whole thing from Friday where he starts hiding his watch and his necklace, and they do yeah. the music. <laughs> he's like, "Oh shit, Devo coming." That was hilarious, man. That was one of the best scenes from Friday, man. I mean, damn, that was a classic movie. Yeah, man, that's what I'm saying. He is Hollywood's own bully. That's who he is. Like you see him coming, hide your stuff. Celebrity that people say you most look like. Me? Yeah. <laughs> man, someone said when I was in school I looked like uh you remember hits from BET? Yeah. I've heard comparisons to that. Um I mean I've heard a few comparisons. Some are off the wall, some are like, okay. I think when I met Mark Henry in new orleans he's like you know who you look like man he said i look like the guy off of atlanta do you watch atlanta i, I haven't watched it yeah it's a, it's a rapper character and he has a best friend that he rolls with he's kind of like a polarizing peculiar character i forget his name why why does his name slip my mind i watch the show all the but yeah probably like hits from the street that's probably the one that comes to mind i can't think of any other than that has anyone ever said merlin santana from steve harvey Romeo. Yeah, I've heard that. I have. Yeah, I'm okay. Thanks for reminding me of that. When I was in elementary school, yeah, the teacher aide, she used to always call me that. She used to call me Stanley, which is what his name was on the Cosby show. And he played Rudy's boyfriend as Stanley. She would always call me Stanley, would never call me by my name. She knew my name, always called me Stanley. Hey, hand me this, Stanley. Stanley, stop talking. So, yeah, that was the running theme, too, when I was in elementary school. And I've heard that after that. Everybody will say a certain celebrity. Now, if a movie about or a TV show about your life, who would you have play you? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I never thought about that. I don't know. If I had to give an answer, probably like Michael B. Jordan or somebody. <laughs> you keep giving that man more work. You're just taking up all the work now. Give him more work. Are you looking forward to Creed 2? I am, man. Are you? Yeah, I am very excited for it, especially that they were going with the thing that everybody wanted they wanted drago either drago or drago's son and i think everybody's gonna yeah. get what they want i'm not gonna lie to you like i heard a rumor at one point that they wanted brock lesnar to pay drago's son i actually wanted that to happen like i like i did want him to play his son i thought that would have been badass cool if you to play drago's son it didn't work out like that but i i mean it's still gonna be a great movie regardless but i was actually kind of hoping that was gonna happen I wonder if Dolph Lundgren's going to show up in the movie, mm -hmm. and if he is, is he going to be sort of reflective of the fact that he killed a man in the ring? I thought he was on board with this project. I'm expecting him to be in the movie, unless I heard something that he's not going to be in it. I'm fully expecting him to be in this movie, but it should be uh, reflective of that. I think Creed did a good job of telling some stories and, and things like that, and I think they'll stay true to the storyline. That would be my expectation. I feel like, looking back in Rocky Four, and I'm not how sure of a big of a boxing fan that you are, but if you watch that everybody should have been in trouble after that fight because the fight should have been stopped a long time ago common sense would have said that fight should have stopped well before apollo died yeah it should have been yeah i guess one of the most popular memes that you see today when times get really rough is <laughs> really rough right bring the damn throw in the damn towel that kind of thing but it was a powerful story in that in that whole film series i would say no question about it. But yeah, I think that if that character is going to be portrayed enough in the film, yeah, it should show what the ramifications were. Or if he feels anything at all all of these years about it. You know what I mean? So however they choose to explore it, as long as it does touch on that, I think that'd be cool. Yeah, moving ahead, you've had the opportunity to go, I believe, three WrestleManias? Four. A oh, four? Yeah. Trying to go to next year, too. 
How did that all come about? And what's the process of, of course, saving up? It's a Super Bowl of wrestling or the Daytona 500 of wrestling. Yeah. Well, you know James Watson, right? Yeah. Big wrestling fan. He's a huge wrestling fan. Um, I met him at Eastern Shore. And that's, you know, pretty much been my best friend ever since. And yeah, he's in, he's huge into wrestling. I never thought that WrestleMania would be a possibility for me to go to, but he said in 2013 that it was in New York, which is where it's going to be in 2018. So if I do go to that, it'll probably be kind of like a full circle kind of deal to go to my fifth one to go back to New York. Because it seemed distant now when I went there because everything was just happening in waves. I never thought I would actually go to WrestleMania. That was almost like, I don't know, like one of those bucket list type things. And Dre was like, yeah, man, it's this close, so we might as well go. I was like, okay, well, hey, the hell with it. I've never been to one before. Let's do it. And planning for that trip, well, first let me say that all the WrestleManias, I go with Dre, and he does all the planning. So all we have to do is just work out the costs. He arranges all of that. He loves planning that stuff. He loves, you know, getting tickets and, you know, and all of that other stuff. So I just pay for my tickets through him, travel arrangements to take care of, and we just head out. And, you know, but the first year wasn't too bad because it was local. All we had to do was just drive up. That's it. Just drive to New York. And New York isn't far from where I'm at or where he's at or anything like that. So that wasn't bad. It wasn't difficult at all to pay for that. But the first challenge was like going to New Orleans, you know, flying there, the arrangements. I had never been to New Orleans before WrestleMania 30, which was the year after the one in New York. And I didn't think I was going to go to another WrestleMania after New York. And then Dre caught that bug, man. And it's like, you know, I don't have kids or anything like that. So I'm able to save for trips and pay for trips, you know, more easily than somebody else probably. And I'm not rolling in dough, but, you know, I manage my money quite well. And I really only got myself to look after. So, you know, it's easy to pay for that stuff. But, yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely expensive, you know, when you're flying to New Orleans. Not to mention, you know, to get on the plane, your hotel fees, your ticket fees, the partying you're going to be doing on Bourbon Street and wherever else you're going to be down there. It's expensive, man. But those experiences are well worth it. If you're into wrestling, I would even say even if you're not all into wrestling, you should go to WrestleMania. I guarantee you it's a good time. So a lot goes into to planning it. Dre actually starts planning for stuff like that probably, I'm just guessing here, maybe like a few months ahead of time. Like he's already looking into the places to stay for New York right now. So, I mean, like, yeah, that kind of stuff, it could take a while to, to plan out, but it's well worth it, man, the experiences. And, you know, if you can go to one that's local, my advice is go to one that's local because you incur less costs. You're at home. If you happen to live somewhere where it's actually there, that, that makes it even better. All you got to do is get the tickets at that point. But, yeah, most of the time you do got to travel for it. But, like, to go somewhere like New York, it's a lot easier than to travel to New Orleans or Dallas or somewhere like that, or even California. I'd hope that if it ever happens, Philadelphia would be probably the best place to have a WrestleMania, especially knowing the history of wrestling fans in Philadelphia and even, I guess, from a selfish perspective, how close it is vicinity to me. That's only less than an hour. Yeah, I mean, like, man, that'd be like, man, let me tell you something. James Drake, we call him Drake. He'd be in heaven if it be in Philly. He lives in the Philadelphia area. You know, that's it. Like, you're at home. You get to, you know, sleep in your own bed. And all you got to do is get tickets to the show. You know what I mean? It would take a huge load off. And I'm like, shoot, all I got to do is just drive up to Philly. I'm good. Like, you know, the Philly is not all that far from Baltimore. So, you know, that'd be great. I would love it. I actually thought they were giving it a test run in January because I actually drove up to Philly to watch the NXT takeover that they had prior to WrestleMania. I attended that show with Dre. And, you know, I think that they had the NXT there, the Royal Rumble, and I think they had Raw and guessing SmackDown was there. So I, I thought that that was a trial run for it. Dre is kind of skeptical about them bringing it there to Philly, but I hope it's something they explore. I mean, he thinks maybe Philly's just too close to New York to just skip over New York, but I'm like, why not? I mean, why not bring it to Philly? It'd be a good experience. 
And uh, it would be something different, even if it is, you know, close to New York. It is what it is. I think that, you know, just having somewhere different, that'd be cool. That'd be great. Even FedEx. Washington is right there, and that's where WWF had a lot of their success and, and really breed it out of. Other than New York was Washington, Baltimore area. Yep. But see, here's the thing that I think Philly will have over D.C. It's the proximity of that arena. See, if something was near, like, FedEx, like, if it was, like, I don't know, like, like let's just... I'm definitely speaking like Verizon was in the same complex as FedEx. I think it probably would be there. Not to say that it won't be, but I'm saying like it probably is more convenient to have all of that stuff in one spot. You know what I mean? As opposed to having to go travel like however far the Verizon Center may be from FedEx. It's not, I imagine it's not too far, but I mean like, you know, I just think that part of having those things on that same complex, like right near each other, that's big. Moody King is right near the Mercedes Benz in New Orleans and all of that stuff. So, but then again, in Dallas, we went to Dallas, and you know, American Airlines isn't right in the same vicinity as the Cowboy Stadium. So, you know, I don't know. I just think that it probably is more appealing to do that when everything is in one central spot. You think in that case, Baltimore would make a, a logical situation because Raven Stadium and Camden Yards are right next to each other. And even then, it's a shorter walk to the arena and the convention center. That would be a city where you could have WrestleMania. Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of cities you could have. I just think the challenge is like, you know, obviously with the colder weather, you know, around that time, it's still freezing around that time. You know what I mean? But I don't think it's as big a barrier. But I just think I just get the feeling that they're more willing to do that for like New York and then they are any other cities. I don't know why. I just do. But they may explore bringing it to a Philly or a D.C. or Baltimore. Why not? You know, because, I mean, like, you imagine what that would do for the local economies there. I mean, especially like in Baltimore, like, you know, but Baltimore would be taken over by people from outside the country. As far as like the fans coming in and enjoy WrestleMania and everything. I think they're all possibilities. I don't think you can rule anything out when it comes to Vince McMahon WWE. And the funny thing is, you get to see their response. If it were in Baltimore, you get to see the response. What would Ring of Honor do? Yeah, that would be interesting. I think that Ring of Honor would be putting on some show. They would put their best foot forward. Not that they don't on a regular basis, but yeah, that would be an interesting dynamic for sure. Because I think that they're going to have a show around NXT next time for New York. Um, yeah. They were trying to attend, I think it's supposed to be Ring of Honor in Japan, um, a split card on the day of NXT in New York. So yeah, I mean, like. That should be interesting. That should be fun. But yeah, it would it would do a lot, especially for Ring of Honor being you know based in Baltimore and everything. Of the WrestleManias you've been to, which one was the most exciting? In my opinion, I assume you would say thirty because of everything that occurred. The Rock, Austin, Hogan, there, Undertaker mm-hmm. streak. Yeah, that was the best one I went to. Dre went to. I didn't go to one. The one after that, in, uh, 2015. That was a pretty good one too. I kind of wish I would have went there. If it was somewhere like L.A., I probably would have been more motivated to go but location's big for me too about wrestlemania you know what i'm saying i made one exception with dallas but i had a surprisingly good time in dallas 2016 um, not surprising like it's a bad town or anything but um i, I had more than i was anticipating having it's actually fun it was actually like almost being in new orleans without the bourbon street is what it's like because i mean you still have a good time there's still good places to eat there and stuff like that but yeah 30 was my favorite for sure man i mean everything about that trip that was easily one of the top three trips i've ever taken in my whole life right around the time when i went to myrtle beach south carolina for the first time in 92 and probably like my first cruise to bermuda but yeah that wrestlemania 30 trip in new orleans man it was just off the wall fun bourbon street was lit every night it was crazy every night the show itself, it was memorable. It was historical. It, it beat the, the previous year's WrestleMania that we attended in New York by a mile and more and then some. Yeah, man, I'll never forget what that arena was like when the Undertaker streak was ended. I mean, like, you had to be there to feel what the atmosphere was like. It was just like, when it happened, no one believed that it happened. Like, I'm like, no, nah, that didn't happen, right? 
and it did. It felt like a long pause. It felt like everything just stopped for like two hours. That's what it felt like. The, the whole stadium was shocked, literally shocked. I was shocked. Everybody was just like, wow, man. But it was a crazy night from that point on. It's just unbelievable how that happened, but it happened. The opening segment with Rock, Austin, and Hogan, that was great. I mean, to be at WrestleMania hit, those three entrance music drop, oh, that was just fun. It was awesome, man. It was just all around good. Um, the trip itself was fun. I had collected bees there. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Great eating. Nothing will compare to that. This most recent trip to New Orleans was fun, but it wasn't 30. During the, the week leading up to WrestleMania, what is it like? What are the activities that you go to leading up to the big show? It depends on where you are. Me and Dre might catch a couple house shows. The atmosphere itself, it depends on where you are. Like in New York, like you saw the, the banners up around town, but I think in New Orleans, it, it really felt like WWE took over the city almost. Especially to that, you know, French Quarter part or downtown or wherever it is. I mean, you know, it's just crazy, man. Fans are marching through town with their wrestling gear on, their throwback shirts on. You know, there are all kinds of house shows going on. There are autograph signings going on at different times throughout the week. Like, I think that Elias, he gave a surprise concert on Bourbon Street this past WrestleMania. Which I thought it was really cool, but we weren't there at the time. We were at a, at a house show just outside New Orleans, I think it was, which was okay. But that would have been so dope to see that Elias' is a surprise concert. But, yeah, man, I mean, waves of wrestling fans are walking the street. They're attending house shows. They're hanging out. They're having a good time. They're out and about. I mean, maybe for, for a lot of the fans, it's the first time they're in New Orleans. And I'm telling you, your first time in New Orleans, that's every time after that is awesome. But it's never going to be like your first time being there, you know, trying those fish bowls and hand grenades and hurricane drinks and stuff like that the first time, eating all the good food there. I mean, it's fun, man. It's a, it's a wonderful place to visit. But WWF has a way of taking over WrestleMania host cities and making their presence felt. And you can see it everywhere, not just at the events that they host at the arenas or the convention centers and stuff like that. You can just feel the atmosphere. You can see wrestlers around town sometimes or at the same bar that you're eating at. We saw wrestlers at New Orleans bars we were eating at. It's just a really fun environment. If there's one, I guess, other sporting event comparable to WrestleMania that you'd want to go to, what would it be? The Super Bowl. But like I said, I'll tell anybody that I don't think I would have as much fun in the Super Bowl as I would at WrestleMania. I don't. Like, I think that it'd be great to be there. It's like, hey, it's cool. I'm here at the Super Bowl, and I'm sure it'd be, it'd be a fun experience. But I think going to WrestleMania is probably more fun, not to mention cheaper to get in. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I think that's probably the one other thing I want to go to in my life is a Super Bowl. If I can get there, you know, and it's possible for me to do it, I would love to go to one if it's under the right circumstances. What's your dream city to visit? Probably L.A. I've never been to L.A. before. I've never been to California before. You know what I mean? If it's not L.A., probably Vegas. One of those two cities. You know, I don't know if I have the interest in Vegas, but Los Angeles was really fun. The The only problem was I wasn't able to experience a lot of it. We got to see a lot. We got to see the Hollywood sign. We got to go to the Walk of Fame. We got to check out some of the different places. But yeah, I feel like if there was an opportunity to do it again, I'd definitely try to go and yeah. see a lot more. Yeah, LA or Vegas. Those are definitely cities that come to mind. If I can go there... That'd be cool. Well, what I really appreciate you spending this time talking about all different aspects from basketball to journalism to pro wrestling, and I do appreciate it. Oh, yeah, no problem, man. Glad to do it. You know, hopefully I was a good guest, and hopefully uh, this was um, good material. What are some ways people can reach you and contact you and follow you? I'm on Twitter. I believe my handle is Lynn Outlaw, L-I-N-O-U-T-L, at L-I-N-O-U-T-L-A-W. Facebook, they come on Google Plus, but I mostly, I mean, Twitter is probably a good way to keep up with me. I mean, all I do, I mean, I post about opinions about a lot of stuff from wrestling, inspirational, motivational quotes I come across, 
if I have something worth sharing that I'm working on from a writing perspective, I'll do that. Hopefully the more stuff I'll contribute on your platform, um, that'll help me put more stuff out there, which I'm hoping to do. It's just, you know, just finding the time was really challenging. But yeah, I mean, you know, mostly on Twitter. You know, your name is perfect place for like the old West. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that a lot. I mean, it is what it is. I'm like, hey, if that's the name uh, daddy gave me and I'm going to the grave and I'm going to honor it because it's his name too. <laughs> that's how I always say it. You know what I mean? I'm surprised you never got any like Bo Outlaw jerseys in either or, Clippers or, or Summers. Or Travis Outlaw, right? Yeah. Everybody forget about Travis Outlaw. He was in the NBA too for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, well, those guys were better players. I probably would have. <laughs> they were like, uh, I guess, like if they were more popular, I probably would have got. I might still do it. I'm sure I could probably go somewhere and get those jerseys. I guess you gotta search high and low for those jerseys. And at the time, I wasn't about going to other team shops and getting those things. But I actually like Charles Outlaw. I think he was actually a good player. I think he was a good rotational guy. I think he was a solid NBA player, by the way. I was admirable of his play. I was admiral of both of their plays. I think Travis Outlaw, he came a much longer way than I expected. I think he's taken him out of high school. I don't know. I think it might have been too soon. But, yeah, I followed both of their careers, actually. Was there, like, a little hope, like, oh, hopefully we're related some way? <laughs> I know, right? I was like, dad, I can finally get this free ride to Eastern Shore. But, nope, not related, unfortunately, to my knowledge. <laughs> well, then, what I really appreciate all of your help. Thank you so much. And we all look forward to hearing a little bit more from you and you coming back and talking to us as well as some of your work on the blog a little later. Oh, yeah, anytime, man. No doubt. I want to thank Linwood Outlaw for participating in this two-part interview. If you haven't heard part one yet or want to listen to past interviews, go to thesportsrefuge.com or you can find the show on Google Play, Apple iTunes, or Stitcher Radio. Next week, one of the biggest interviews I've had so far in the show's history. I'll be sitting down with sportscaster Scott Abraham of WJLA7 in Washington, D.C. We'll discuss his journey into being a sports reporter. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening to the Sports Refuge podcast and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge podcast. Tune in next time for more interviews on sports, pop culture, and everything in between. For more information on the show, go to the Sports Refuge website at www.thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at the Sports Refuge Sports Blog.